This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. tell you something. I don't want anybody that works here or that listens to this program to ever again say that I am not a great humanitarian, a charitable person, a lover of my fellow man, and a lover of my co-workers. I'll tell you what just occurred. We have a very strict rule here at the radio station, at the radio network, Red Apple Media Central. That we have a communal refrigerator that everybody's welcome to use. And it says, posted in bold letters, right when you open the refrigerator, it says, label and date anything you put in there, otherwise it will be thrown out. So, what some of us do from time to time is we will peruse the refrigerator to see if there is anything that is unlabeled, because... Look, under the rules of the radio jungle in which we're living, anything that is not labeled with someone's name on it and or the date or at least initials, some indication of ownership or preference, that is up for grabs. That has been well documented. This precedent has been well established. Not one person who's work, who works here has ever quarreled with that. Well, moments ago, I came across in the refrigerator a rather delicious-looking spicy tuna roll. Now, you know of my fondness for sushi. This was wrapped in plastic. It looked like a, uh, I don't know how you describe it, but a large spicy tuna roll, almost more, rather than a piece of sushi, an individual piece of sushi, it looks more like a sushi sandwich kind of deal. Wrapped in plastic, looks perfectly clean, untouched. No one's name on it. No one's name on it. And you know who put it right back where he found it and did not even think about eating it? This guy. This guy. I'll just say, not all heroes wear capes, ladies and gentlemen. Not all heroes wear capes. Now, uh, action-packed show for you today. For the next four hours, we have, finally, we, we, have, we have picked up the mail and we have... Did you ever see Miracle on 34th Street, that scene in the courtroom where they dump all the letters to Santa Claus in? Well, that's what we have to reenact next hour. We have a ton of snail mail, a ton of email, a ton of SMS text messages, and we're going to try and get to it as many, much of it as possible. We're supposed to talk with Kevin Jackson, who is an outspoken conservative commentator, happens to be black and uh, never, never, ever hesitant to give his opinion no matter how controversial it is he's supposed to join us in 20 minutes but we tried to call him about a half hour ago and uh he his phone went to voicemail and we weren't able to leave voicemail so i don't know if this is going to be another instance of a situation where we get screwed up in terms of time zones because i think he's in arizona and arizona doesn't observe daylight saving time but i don't mind it because if kevin's not here we had a lot of stories to get to and a lot of mail to get to 
I have described to you before my favorite, really right now, now that Tucker Carlson's off the air, the only show on cable news that I really enjoy watching is Michael Smarconish on CNN. I plan my whole Saturday out of making sure I can watch Michael Smirkanish on Saturday. Not this past Saturday, but the one before that, I was in Atlantic City. Even though I stayed up late uh, drinking and losing all my money, I made sure that I was up at 9 a.m. to watch Michael Smirkanish. Uh, the previous week, I was in Atlanta for a bachelor party in a rented house with four or five guys, communal television. I said, fellas... I don't know what you want to watch, but whatever you want to watch, we can watch it at 10 o'clock or any other time because it's 9 o'clock. I am putting on Michael Smirconish. Made them suffer through an hour of uh, stories they weren't interested in hearing about. And this past Saturday, my wife and I were making the journey out to Westchester County for my goddaughter's first communion. And... I made sure that we were going to be in the car in the car at a time when we can listen to the Sirius XM simulcast of Michael Smirconish on the air. And that's what we did. Tuned to CNN, 9 a.m. Eastern, Saturday morning, only to hear not Michael Smirconish, but a bunch of pundits, anchors, correspondents, and... Passers-by all commenting on... I here present unto you King Charles, your undoubted king. Wherefore, all you who are come this day to do your homage and service, are you willing to do the same? God save King Charles. That's right. The ridiculous coronation of a foreign head of state, they preempted my favorite TV show for. Now, l- let me ask you a question. Why did we fight a revolution if we were just going to be on board with whatever the UK and the Commonwealth were doing in paying attention to this royal transition? First of all, I tried to watch a couple of minutes of this. It is the most boring thing in the world. This is ridiculous that this still goes on in the 21st century. Why are there monarchies? This is absolutely absurd. The fact that he doesn't have any real power is even more of a joke because it's all just pointless. Now, if you look at what's gone on in the UK over the last 15 years, their economy is really struggling. You know who is not struggling? Who's not struggling is the British royal family. They are worth billions, and they have done incredibly well over the course of the last 10 years with these low interest rates because the investments, by the way, none of them have a job. None of them have a job. Their job is to be professional leeches off the taxpayer. And yet, through all of this, you're seeing the royal family, who, which has done nothing for anybody, the royal family does great, while the people in the UK do okay. And I, I know they say that a lot of the money that, the, uh, that they get in, uh, in tourism because of the royal family, uh, 
it, it comes back to them somehow, and it's it's kind of an investment. I think it's ridiculous. And I was reminded of that terrific scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who do you think he is? I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! But you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! I completely agree with that peasant in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Don't you think it's absurd that they still go along with this? I mean, I think the only thing that's um, I recognize it's not like Saudi Arabia or Bahrain where they actually have uh, a certain degree of, of power, these these monarchs. But I find this absolutely absurd. And I think it's even more absurd that that American television, a, a country that fought a revolution to break away from this monarchy is going along with celebrating this giant hereditary reality show. It's worse than a reality show because on a reality show, presumably you actually have to be cast by someone, by a producer or a casting agent. This is just nonsense. This is just nonsense. So because King Charles is the son of the person that was there for six decades Everybody should care about this and have their favorite TV program upended and not be able to enjoy it on a Saturday morning, a perfect start to your day? I think not. So this monarchy, what do you think? Am I off base on this either? I think it's ridiculous that the U.K. still goes along with this and all the Commonwealth countries, which go beyond the U.K., But even more than that, I think it's ridiculous that the American media hyperventilates over this. And why just with the U.K.? Are we going to do this for the next emperor of Japan? Are we going to do this for the next sultan of Bahrain? Are we going to do this for the next crown prince of Saudi Arabia? Again, with Saudi Arabia, it actually makes a little bit of sense because the Saudis actually, that royal family actually still runs the country. This makes no sense. These guys have no power. They have slightly less authority than the Manhattan Borough president. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you look at the finances of the monarchy, and again, I have nothing against King Charles as a person or his sons or his mother or any of them as people. I have nothing against them. But if you look at the finances, they are doing great. They have a booming real estate portfolio of bucolic farms wholesale warehouses and prime London offices that has helped cover a royal spending free. No one outside the palace is exactly sure how rich the monarchy is or of the personal wealth of the new king, Charles. But the one thing that's for sure is the British monarch's annual income is a lot higher than it was a decade ago, in part because of an asset price boom fueled by ultra-low interest rates and government stimulus. 
the question I think you have to ask is, why is the government funding this? Funding for the monarchy has soared at a time when the U.K. has been mired in very weak economic growth. Inflation-adjusted income for most ordinary Britons has been stagnant over the last 15 years. And yet they still go along with funding this farce. Does anybody else think this is a good idea? I don't. And I'm like that guy in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I didn't vote for you. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Happy to have uh, our regular phone number back, which is very nice. Uh, Billy is in Rockland County. Hello there, Billy. Hello, Frank. What's on your mind? I think you're very much off base. They do have power. They do have a lot of soft power that an influence that, you know, is a lot stronger than you say and think. Uh, and they are a rallying point for the British people, okay? Oh, well, Great Britain you, go ahead. Great Britain is a union of Scotland, Northern Ireland, England and Wales. Okay, and the Crown unifies that. Well uh, so and it's not it's just the country off, it's better. Go ahead. It started off with the, the when the Scots became a king, a Scottish king became head of the throne. Okay, that you know was kind of like Obama in a way become president. Well, no, no it's not because Obama yeah, was elected. Was because yeah, but these were two peoples that hated each other's guts. Okay, so it became like symbolic that one of ours is the head of the throne now. So it helped unify Scotland and England at the time. Okay, and it still does. Well, so you would tell me, first of all, a lot of Scotland wants to secede from the U.K. Uh, that's well, for starters. Do you think that's something good? Well, I'll leave it up to the Scottish. I don't care what Scotland does. If they want to secede, God bless them. But um, a couple of things here, Billy. One, um, and it's not just the countries you reference that uh, observe the king as their head of state. It's all the Commonwealth countries. It's Canada. It's Australia. It's Bermuda. All the Commonwealth sure. countries do. But it's why, an empire. It's an empire yeah, that right, ruled the right, world. Understood. Understood. But why do they need? First of all, let's say that that you're right. Well, let's say that that the unifying force of a monarch is so important that it brings all these divergent cultures and peoples together. Let's say you're right about that. Why should we, as Americans, that bow to no monarch? Why should we care about it? Well, why do people care about the Kennedys? Because people. You know, well, like a lot that, of a lot of people don't this lifestyle. Well, a lot of people don't a care lot about of the Kennedy. Do. I'm not. Yeah, a lot but of people do though. Also, I, I think though, but if you think they have a lot more power and influence than you say, they're not figureheads, or he is not a figurehead. They have a lot more power and influence than you think. And also, a king is a king is directly responsible for the people. Okay, whatever like system comes between the people and the head of state, whether it's like a House of Commons or a Congress or a Senate, the king. Well, the monarch is supposed to be responsible directly to the people and stop those either dukes or noble dukedoms or earls or whatever they are, com, people in the House of Commons, from using their power too much and infringing on the people. So that are the British taxpayers. Um, yeah, they're supported by the taxpayer a lot, but, you know, they also have their own wealth. So. 
Right, but the wealth. I mean, they're, they're a constitutional monarchy, okay? No, I, yeah, I understand. Because you never grew up there. Yeah, uh, thank you, Billy. I understand what a constitutional mar- monarchy is, but who cares? Who cares? Why should any of us care? First of all, a lot of British people are asking the same question that I am. Uh, and there have been questions about this going back for more than a thousand years. But nobody voted for the monarchy. Half the population under the age of 50 doesn't think that it should exist. And uh, I, I personally certainly don't think it should exist. But let's say they want to do it. Whatever England wants to do, whatever Scotland wants to do, whatever Wales wants to do, whatever Northern Ireland wants to do, God bless them, I don't care. I just don't understand why anybody in America cares about this. Honestly. And I just don't get it. Educate me. 800-848-9222. Ed is in Forest Hills. Hello, Ed. Yeah, Frank. Yeah, Ed. Yeah, Frank, I agree with you 100%. This has been going on for too long. I've been saying this. I'm in my 80s now, and I've been saying this I was since I was 30 years old. This is so ridiculous. They're just figureheads. And when are they going to pay us back for the Lend-Lease program out of those crown jewels? Jesus Christmas. Well, the thing is, though, Ed, and I get what you're saying, and I appreciate the call, and I thank you for listening. But the th- I totally understand what you're saying. But the the thing is, even if the king wanted to make that decision, they have no governmental power. They are figureheads, in spite of what Billy said. It makes zero sense at all. I, I just, I don't get it at all. Uh, 800-848-9222. I don't get why we care. I don't get why the Britons keep up this system. I, I don't understand why other countries keep up this system. It makes zero sense to me. And uh, look, I'm all for tradition. I love history. I love, um, you know, I love culture. I, I love the, the, I don't know, the tracing back the history to the Norman invasion. I think it's interesting. But there's, these people are living totally on the backs of the British people at a time when the British people are really struggling. Why, do you, why should they keep this up? But even if they should, why should we play along with this? International hereditary reality show. Makes no sense to me. All right. We may or may not speak to Kevin Jackson in a moment. Hopefully we will. I'm certainly hopeful. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The great James Brown says he's black and he's proud. Well, I'll tell you, I don't know if James Brown would know what to do with Kevin Jackson. Uh, They say that James Brown was the hardest working man in show business. If there was ever a title for most outspoken man in media, that title would go to Kevin Jackson. If you have heard Kevin Jackson, you know exactly what a treat you are in store for. If you are unfamiliar with Kevin Jackson, then stop whatever you're doing for the next 15 minutes. Do not even contemplate going to bed. If you're in the car right now and you're going to meet someone or you're driving home, pull over. Because what you are about to hear is must-listen-to radio. Kevin Jackson is many things. He's an entrepreneur, he's an author, he's a consultant, former uh, media contributor to places like the Fox News Channel. He was a contributor there for a while, author of a best-selling book called The Big Black Lie. He runs the Kevin Jackson Network, a website devoted to entertaining news commentary. He is often controversial, always opinionated, and uh, out of every black conservative in America... I don't think there's a person that does a better job both making the case for conservatism and pointing out some aspects of hypocrisy on the other side of the political spectrum. Kevin, my friend, it has been too long. Thank you so much for joining me on the radio. Holy cow. You're right, Frank. It has been too long. I don't know if I can live up to all that, man. I mean, I'm a bad mother. Shut your mouth. But holy cow. <laughs> you are way, when, when you, you ask me for my, my lead in music, I should have given you Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. But that was a good one. Uh, well, so, Kevin, a couple of things here. Now, you were fired from Fox News a few well, years ago before it was fashionable to be fired from Fox News. Now you're not cool unless you get fired from Fox News. Um, you, remind people, without getting us canceled or getting me fired, remind people what was the gist of why you got fired from Fox News. You you, you, said, you were talking about the Kavanaugh accusers. Do I remember it yeah. accurately? Yeah, yeah. The gist of it was I tweeted when it had gotten so ridiculous that, you know, the, what's her face, Blasey Ford talking about her hip account campus and all this crap when she's talking about sexual assault. And it got so ridiculous with, you know, Swetnick saying she had been to 10 of these so-called sex parties with Kavanaugh. And my joke to Howard Stern was, well, you would have thought that after three of them, she would have said to her date, how about we just go to a movie? But the point was they were skanks. And so I tweeted I didn't even say it on air that the Kavanaugh accusers were lying skanks. And literally within two minutes of that tweet, Fox called me and says, will you take it back? You know, Kevin, you need to take it back. We hope it wasn't you. I said, no, it was me. I have four sons. I don't want my sons, you know, being up for some big award and having to remember what they did 35 years ago from lying skanks. And long story short, uh, they said, if you don't take it back, you know, it could be a career ending decision. And I said, I'm very talented. I don't need Fox. Do what you need to do. And I hung up and they fired me like a minute later. It came across my Dick Tracy watch. But I stand by it, man. And I think that when more, you know, when people talk about, oh, you're a sellout or you're this or that, I'm like, no, I'm not a sellout. I could have easily kept my job. You wouldn't even probably know who Dan Bongino is. God rest his Fox soul, because I would have been the person who would have gotten that that show and probably would be in line to take over for Tucker had I lasted. But Fox is a completely different animal, and people that think it's conservative are just losing their mind. So, you know, there it is. Now, you, um, you, so you got fired essentially for a tweet, nothing you said or did on air. Right. Um, do you see any 
corollaries, any parallels between your situation and the situation that resulted in Tucker Carlson? I know it could be tough to say because we don't precisely know why Tucker Carlson was fired. But based on your reading of the facts, do you see any similarities? Oh, yeah. It's Tucker's black. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, Tucker Tucker got fired because he was just too outspoken. Uh, You know, I think the J6 tapes probably did the most damage because Fox is already embroiled in battle with Dominion. They were already with Lachlan and those guys taking over. They were already sort of leaning more to the left. And what's interesting is while Chris Light is over at CNN and he's trying to right the ship by going to the right, Fox is doing the opposite. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of speculation there. Uh, but nobody's ever – only Tucker and, the, and Fox are ever really going to know the real truth, even unless Tuck, Tucker writes a book down the road. But I think it was more Tucker being outspoken. Here's what I can tell you from some inside baseball. Three times I was reprimanded at Fox. I got home, and if anybody's ever seen me on Fox, I mean, I'm a, I'm a leftist slayer. I mean, I just slice and dice these clowns. So I get home after doing outnumbered or whatever. And three times the phone rang. It was corporate. I'm thinking they're calling to congratulate me to go, Kev, you knocked it out of the park. And every time it was, well, we got a lot of Twitter traffic on this or that. And I'd look at it, and it was all bots. So they really measure social media. And if the left were beating up on Tucker and the bot farms were making it look like there were more people that hated him than loved him, they would, they would let you go or certainly reprimand you. So I got reprimanded when I got asked the question, what do you think the FBI has planned for Trump? This is back when he was president. And I, I, here's where I answered it. I said, well, it could be as benign as the FBI doesn't care. They're not doing anything against Trump. Or they could really be out to get him per Chuck uh, Schumer's uh, warning that the clandestine agencies have six ways of Sunday to get you. So that was my comment. And, uh, and Harrison, Harris Faulkner says she was interrupted in her ear by the producers that said, Make sure Kevin's not saying that the FBI would do something to Trump. And I repeated it. I said, look, I'm not telling you that they won't do something to Trump, that they would do something to Trump. I'm telling you, it could be anything in between. And they they said it again. And when I got back, they called me to say, look, you can't say things like that. And I made this comment. I said, look, guys, don't tell me what to say. Roger Ailes hired me, says Kevin, respect the brand. You hired me because I know what I'm talking about. I don't mince words. And I'm going to tell you the way it is. And I'm not going to stop doing it just because you feel like I'm hurting the brand. Roger told me one, two things when he hired me. One, Kevin, Fox, he said, respect the brand. And number two, you're one of the most talented people I've ever met. Welcome to the Fox family. And I've never disrespected the brand. When you uh, and with people just tuning in, we're talking with uh, with Kevin Jackson and uh, really one of the most talented uh, talk show hosts out there. But really so much more than that. You got to check him out at the uh, the Kevin Jackson Network, which you could check out at uh, the Kevin Jackson Network dot com. When you look at the situation at Fox over the years, we've seen a lot of stars, not a lot of well-known people, but stars, guys that got millions of viewers Come and go. Uh, O'Reilly, a great example, but not just O'Reilly. Megyn Kelly, who was a star in primetime at Fox. People like uh, Shepard Smith, Paula Zahn, Catherine Cryer. And the one constant has always been that eventually people might get upset. Uh, they might say they're going to watch other networks. They might do other things. But Fox has 
always done pretty well, and the conservative-leaning cable viewing audience tends to come back. So far, in the first couple of weeks of Tucker Carlson being off primetime, we have seen a ratings decline in Fox. Do you think this is going to be like what we've seen before, just a blip on the radar screen, or do you think Fox has done some permanent damage to its audience here? I think it's a latter, but I think that it's a cumulative effect. Uh, Frank, you know, so you had O'Reilly leave. They took a, a bit of a beating. But when O'Reilly left, Megan Kelly was already – she'd already taken over as number one by the time they got rid of Bill. So I was Megan Kelly's go-to person, and she and Hannity were fighting it out for one and two at that point. And they used to – literally, they'd call me and, you know, Kevin, don't go on Hannity tonight or don't go on <laughs> Megan's show tonight. It's really funny. So, you know, it's funny. I have a lot of other friends that were Fox, both contributors and guests at the time, and they would say the same thing. O'Reilly and Hannity, they would fight over which guests were coming on which show. And the same thing with Megyn Kelly and Hannity. It's true. It's true. But it's a little different. So what they would do is they fight over, like, say there's a hot topic, you know, and Jordan Peterson or some big name. They would fight to get that particular person. But when you're a contributor and you're coming on to just carry it to do a topic. Uh, it's a little different. So there are rules. For example, you can't do a morning show. You can't do two shows on Fox in the same day. For the most part, nobody does it. Now, you got to almost get permission to do it. I did it routinely. I would do Fox and Friends in the morning. I'd do Hannity in the afternoon, or I'd do uh, you know, one the, the noonday show, and then I'd do uh, Tucker in the evening or something like that. Almost impossible. And it was practically it had to be sanctioned by God himself for you to do two shows in the evening. And when it was during Ferguson, I did it all the time. And it was because I delivered. Now, you're right that they they fight over a person because Hannity and Tucker are going to have the same guests. They don't want want them back to back. But I've done that back to back on Hannity and uh, and Megyn Kelly shows. So but it just you know, you just have to I mean, it's a big deal to, to have it done. But going back to the question. So Megan uh, O'Reilly leaves. They take a little bit of a hit, but not much because Megan was rising. Megan left, but she was already tainted by the time she left because she had done the Trump, you know, embarrassed, tried to embarrass Trump during the debate, and so her star had already started to to dwindle. And she actually got a better deal to stay at Fox, but she took the NBC deal because I think she wanted to try something different. And the differences there are both of them really suffered when they left. Fox, they didn't do as well as they could have. Tucker leaving, he will get a better gig one way or the other, whether he does it on his own and he does sort of the Joe Rogan thing or whatever. So that's the difference. The other thing is the times have changed. Fox has already started to go down. Pardon me. The other network, every all of all of that's changing because of the way the, the market is changing. So. You know, if you ask me, will they will it come back? It's not going to come back, but not just because of Tucker, but because the market is changing. People are now more entrenched on their cell phones. They they can now go to a podcast like a Rogan or the Daily Wire or my site and get you know commentary from people they like, buy the drink, whoever they want, and they don't have to put up with Fox's politics. But it's also self defeating because Fox themselves have been shooting themselves in the foot. You know, for the last, you know, with, I mean, with, I'd say for the last four years, they've been shooting themselves in the foot because of this anti-Trump view, et cetera. And if you watch what's going on with Trump right now, this dude is feasting over what's happening with with uh, 
with Fox, but he's also feasting over the lies and the stuff that's being revealed as we learn more and more about the, the, the election engineering, uh, election interfering, I should say, the FBI's interference, Twitter files, uh, what we've learned about what Blinken did, what we now know through the cafe releasing Biden's bank records, what that came up, and then what we're going to learn supposedly from Comer on Wednesday. I mean, Trump's going to look like King Kong when it's all said and done. Well, if people just tuning in, we're talking with Kevin Jackson. Check him out at the Kevin Jackson Network. And Kevin, just to be clear, you survived your file, your firing from Fox. You're not homeless or anything now, right? <laughs> No, man, I'm eating pretty good. Let me tell you a quick story. So when they fired me, I alluded to it. They said, Kevin, you're making a career decision. And I interrupted and said, so what you're essentially what you're telling me is that, what, I'm nothing without Fox? And I said to the person who was telling me, don't do this, because we were good friends. But she says to me, look, don't do it. And I said, look, you don't get it. This is for my kids. I have four sons. And that's number one. And number two, don't you ever think that you, you know, that you are a person who directs my career. I'm a talented person. And, and while I enjoy my time at Fox, I truly did. But you, you, you're not going to dictate my future. And I was insulted. And, and I don't know if you remember this, Frank, but they then they sent everything was cool with me at Fox until they sent out a note. They called my what I did reprehensible. And I went on WABC, uh, your state, your very radio station, and I said, look, here's what I find reprehensible. Jesse Waters screwing his producer. Earl, uh, I mean, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ed Henry is messing around with a with stripper. Well, he's married. And I said, that's reprehensible. What I did is not reprehensible. And that's when we went on the war path with Fox. And I predict mm. Fox is going to go on a war path with Tucker if they keep messing with him, then there may be some dirt. Because I was cool. I told everybody, look, Fox has a right to fire me. I'm not suing them. I'm not going to pull the race card. Like, they don't like Negroes up in here. I'm not doing mm-hmm. that. I'm just going to let it go. But when they called me reprehensible, I was this close to suing them because I'm like, I don't know what people call is reprehensible. But me tweeting that a skank is a skank is not reprehensible, certainly not compared to the crap that I could drop on Fox News right. at well, any given day. Putting aside the the definition of, of skank for the moment, y- your, your prediction on the Tucker-Fox wars, that's precisely what Megyn Kelly's been saying is going to go down. And if you read Axios yesterday, Tucker Carlson apparently is preparing to unleash allies to attack Fox News essentially in an effort to bully the network into letting him work for or start a right-wing rival. Now, evidently, what Fox wants to do is uh, pay Tucker, what Axios is saying, $20 million a year until the end of his contract to not allow him to go elsewhere. And apparently, he's been offered more than that from uh, uh, several other uh, potential outlets, and he's leaving open (laughs) the door to maybe doing what O'Reilly and others are doing and just doing this all independently, kind of like what you're doing. If you were giving Tucker advice based on your knowledge of the media landscape and seeing what you've gone through, what would you tell him? Would you tell him to go work for another right-wing network like Newsmax or Rumble or to try and do the O'Reilly, Megyn Kelly route, do it independently? 
Well, first of all, that's some serious cheddar right there, Frank. Yeah, if, $20 million. Right, if that's accurate. I mean, I'll stay home for a lot less than $20 million, I'm just Kevin. saying, man, I, you know, they could have got me. Uh, you had me at hello, right? So, look, it, it, I will say this, um, all jokes aside, because that's white privilege money right there. But, but if I'm giving Tucker <laughs> advice, I would say go the Rogan route. You know, Joe is making hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, he makes over $100 million a year, I think. Uh, because of what deals that he's able to cut. Now, here's the thing about Rogan. Rogan is like me. Rogan was a stand-up comedian. I'm a stand-up comedian. We're doing the Unapologetically American Comedy Tour for those people that care. We might even be in New York, Frank, soon. I'll let you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But um, so Rogan did that. Martial artist, you know, he's doing UFC in the sports. And I I don't know if you guys know this, but, you know, I've got four black belts. I mean, Rogan and I are cut from the same cloth, and I've been called the more intellectual version of Joe. Now, he's been far more successful, but because I'm, I'm, I'm building my empire a whole other way. I think Tucker has the capability of doing a lot more the things like I've done. And probably following more the daily uh, uh, Ben Shapiro's model, except doing it much better. Because Tucker's just such a talent. Oh, he yeah. really is. And I, so I, I think personally, uh, the only person I would join if I were him, I would join an Elon Musk thing maybe and put something together that way because I've, I've heard rumors of that. Uh, there's been a guy that offered him twenty million. I don't know how serious he was. This bet, uh, Patrick, uh, bet David. Yeah, if people don't know what you're talking about. Let me let me play a little bit of that. That was on uh, Megyn Kelly's show yesterday. Patrick, bet David, who has done very well in the private sector and he's got a successful YouTube show as well. As We're willing to make a on record. I'll be tweeting this right after I'm done here, uh, and it'll be on Twitter. It'll be on YouTube. It'll be on all over the place. A hundred million dollar five year offer, equity position in the company a president position, and a board seat to make decisions on what we want to do with docs, movies, specials, any other shows, and whatever else he wants to talk about. Podcast, show, all of it on OTT. But that is an offer we're making to Tucker. Tucker knows how to get a hold of me, and uh, we feel uh, he's a one-center-generation type of a voice, and we would love to have him be here with Valuetainment. We may not be the biggest. Obviously, there's a lot of bigger names out there. Uh, but if you want to team up with somebody that's got the vision in place, the cause in place, and it's a true believer on how great of a country America is that is worth fighting for, and the fight is a real fight because the enemy is real, we feel we're the right fit uh, to partner with somebody like Tucker Carlson. Hey, Kevin, it does look like uh, Tucker is the uh, hottest free agent since LeBron James. He is, you know, and, and, and I, but look, I, I will take nothing away from Tucker, but I will say this. I'm good at what I do. I'm going to call Bed David later tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but I may not get that kind of money, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of people out there who are really good at what we do, and I, I wish Tucker nothing but success. I think he will be – I don't even think it. I know he will be wildly successful wherever he goes. But let me tell you, there are so many great thinkers out there and people in Fox and, and a lot of people in the conservative movement, sadly, have squelched those voices out of jealousy or – pettiness like you know a shift in strategy as fox has done but look i will say this i when i left fox in 2018 when they fired me i'm a former management consultant to the largest companies in the world and i left that company and said fox is dead man walking because if you let talent like me and others go and, and i know it sounds like i'm blowing my horn but i dare anybody to go look at my interviews and tell me that I wasn't, you know, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm purporting myself to be. But I said when Fox is willing to let that type of talent go, 
just willy-nilly, not even give it two seconds of thought, you can't survive that way. And um, while people think Tucker is a, you know, Bet David said Tucker's a one in a lifetime, I disagree. I think there are people that can do that. And, I, and I'm not bragging here. I think I'm one of them, but I know others. And those people are going to, you know, the, the cream's going to rise. And when it happens and people find out the range of people that are out there in the conservative movement who, you know, who spit truth every day or unapologetically are willing to take it in the, you know, kick somebody in the crotch and, and, and smile about it the way I will and are willing to back it up, they're going to start looking. They're looking for that talent. And I'll tell you, there's a craving in America for people who want to tell the truth and who do tell the truth. And it's not because we want, you know, I, I want people to remember my name or whatever. I am true blue American because I love this country, and it's the way I grew up loving this country. And Tucker's the same way. Kevin, so, uh, yeah, I, I want to pick your brain on one or two other issues before we run out of time here. We're talking right, with Kevin Jackson. Yeah, Kevin Jackson. Hey, uh, there was a report this week that black voters in this country are still backing Biden, but not with nearly the same amount of enthusiasm as they did in 2020. Still leading among uh, Trump or DeSantis or anybody else, but the level of the the approval rating and the hypothetical matchups, he's not doing as well with black voters as he did a few years ago. What's going on? Not that you can necessarily analyze the uh, political uh, habits of every black voter, but tell me. Yeah, exactly. Tell me the story. What what is the story (laughs) as the uh, black ambassador to our show? (laughs) First of all, the blacks didn't vote. They, the blacks abandoned the Democratic Party in more number in bigger numbers in 2020 than they ever did, and that's why there are people that know that Trump was cheated. Trump got well over 20 percent of the black vote in the 2020 election, and you can't statistically win as a Democrat without that. Now that that aside, he's lost even more ground with the black voters, and it's a very simple thing. You know, look. We got crackheads in our families. Black people do. So most white people do, too, at this point. But we got a lot of crackheads. My father was a crackhead. And I'm going to tell you something. He can't sit on the board of any company. He never would have. And and when you – you know, it's funny. The left talks about white privilege all the time. Look at the Bidens. Look at the Clintons. Look at these people that once they strap that D, you know, put that D around their neck – then they can do whatever they want. So even blacks are going, wait a minute, we talk about a, a dual system of justice here. We've been going through this since the 1960s, well, since forever. And now we watch it happen right before our eyes from the party that claims that they want to protect us. This is the party that releases illegal illegals into the streets in every major city, and black people sit in jails over the same crime. So it's a because- mix of both policy and uh, a different standard of justice. It's a combination it of the and, two. And, and it's never been more pronounced than Joe Biden's and the left's protection of the Biden family, and specifically Hunter Biden. And there's not a black person on the planet that's looking at that can that sympathizes with Hunter and says, oh, you know, poor woe, woe is Hunter because he's got to pay his baby mama, you know, additional child support. We're looking at this situation and going, wait a minute. You know, this is completely unfair. Also, you know, we also understand 
when the trans situation, and I'm just using this as an example, when they come over, start playing women's sports, and everybody's going, oh, you got to use he, she pronouns. By the way, Frank, my pronouns are sexy chocolate if you want to use You got them. it. Duly noted. That'll be reflected in, in your Chiron next time you're Thank on. you. I appreciate it. But, yeah, so we understand when, when game is being run on us, and game is being run on women in the black community. So, look, we, we're finally taking an in in accounting, an in, in inventory of what's going on, and starting to recognize it. Now, is it in enough numbers? No, but it's it's in big enough numbers to where and, and for the record I want to be clear, Joe Biden's out. People need to understand this. He will not be the Democrat nominee, and I hate that. I'm gonna tell you one other quick thing. Kamala Harris will be president before the end of this before the end of his term. Frank, I'm guaranteeing you this. She will be president. And if you have me back on the show, I'll even tell people why, that I'll guarantee that. Well, let's do this again in a week or two, Kevin, if you're willing for, uh, to stay up another another late night. <laughs> Last question, Kevin, I'm going to ask you. You're a resident of Arizona now, and even though you're a very outspoken conservative, you're, you're a pretty sound analyst of politics in general. Sure. I am watching this U.S. Senate race out there next year with a lot of interest. I, I happen to be very impressed with uh, Kirsten Cinema and a lot of things that she's done, and I'm wondering... What chances do you what how do you handicap that race? It looks like she's going to have uh, a we don't know who the Republican's going to be yet, but it looks like she's going to probably run as an independent. There'll be a Republican and then there'll be uh, this Democrat uh, Congressman Gallego. Do you think there's any way she does a Joe Lieberman and wins a three way race? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kirsten Cinema is a she's a brilliant strategist. Um, she's you know, she was categor- characterized as a weird chick. And she is to some degree because she's bisexual. you know. Kind of got all the accoutrements yep. of leftism. But I will tell you, she's been a better senator than both Flake and McCain. She did something very brilliant because people don't know this. Independents in Arizona outnumber both parties, Republicans and Democrats. There's 1.5 independents here, million independents. There's about 1.45 million Republicans and 1.3 plus million Democrats. So she took the independents. That vote she'll get the majority of. She'll get the majority of the Democrats, even if Ruben Gallego Gallego runs, they're still going to see her as a sitting senator. And believe it or not, there are Republicans who respect her for what she's done. So I would tell you, it's going to be almost impossible to beat her uh, as an independent. I just wish she would caucus with the Republicans and not the Democrats. That's the only negative. But she, you know, look, we don't agree with a lot. Well, we disagree with her. She is a, you know, she's guano crazy. I'm talking nuttier than squirrel turds. But where we agree with her, she's awesome. And uh, she's, as I said, done better than the two Republicans we had before that. So, Kevin, you know, I think I appreciate it. It's always a treat to talk with you, my friend. Uh, let's talk right, again brother. soon, okay? Kevin okay. Jackson, check him out on the Kevin Jackson Network. A whole world opens up on the Kevin Jackson Network. There's, uh, there's podcasts, there's commentary. It is not for the faint of heart. The Kevin Jackson Network.com. Your calls, comments, questions, thoughts, 800 848 9222. Six open lines, 800 848 9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. There's something happening here. What it 
is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Battle lines being drawn Nobody's right If everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind the time we stop This is The Other Side of Midnight I'm Frank Moreno This is the Great Buffalo Springfield uh, one of the members of Buffalo Springfield, the guitarist Richie Foray, I believe is, is the name. Richie Foray is uh, celebrating his birthday today, 76 years old today. So uh, happy birthday, Richie Foray, and to you if you're celebrating your birthday today. We have a great listener named Janet who's celebrating her birthday today as well. I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. In my house right now, in my garage to be precise, there are not one but two cats that are recovering after being fixed. My wife does this thing where she traps cats and uh, she takes them to be spayed or neutered and she also will allow our garage to be used to recover cats. So after they have their surgery, they need a couple of days to not be out in the wild so that their their uh, stitches don't come loose. And, you know, it's funny, my wife, it, it, they basically spend the whole time in a trap and my wife goes in there to feed them, and I haven't been able to go in there. I couldn't even do the recycling yesterday uh, to have our recycling pickup because we keep our cardboard and everything in there. And she said, this little cat is so sweet. And look, we already have three cats, and I can tell by the way that she's talking about this cat that she wants to keep this cat. And I am just saying, please let this recovery period end quickly so that these cats can be released back to... Wherever they came from. But uh, it's great that she does it. And uh, hopefully more people will do whatever they can to do some uh, TNR for uh, for cats. Yesterday also, on Sunday rather, we I, I have a routine of ways that I do things. Basically, everything that I do is governed by how many emails are left unread in my email box. So at 120 emails left in my inbox... I make a list of all the things that I have to do for the show. At 110 uh, emails left in my inbox, I will do one of those tasks and read a tab that I have open on my computer so that I can close that tab. At 100, I will do a non-show task. At 90, I'll go back to a show task. At 80, I'll read one of the newspapers that I'll read. And whatever. So I'm going – I have this whole process. It's very regimented and it's a little OCD-ish. And at – Whatever number it was yesterday, it was making more progress earlier in the day than I expected. But at 70, it was take the garbage out. So I really wasn't supposed to put the garbage out that early. There are new restrictions where I live. You're not supposed to put it out before 8 p.m., but I put it out much earlier. And my neighbors all noticed. And they were busting my chops in the neighborhood group chat. And I come home from the 70th birthday party. Happy birthday, Dan Fratalone. believe today's his actual birthday. Happy birthday to you, Dan. I come home and there's a warning on our taped to our door from the Department of Sanitation, ostensibly. 
And it says that if we do this again, we're going to get a $100 fine. Now, my wife was suspicious of this because of the jokers that live on that block. Well, lo and behold, yesterday, we examined the ring camera footage. And one of my neighbors, John Charles, got this fake sign to put on our door just to scare us. So we'll see who has the last laugh. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. There's a lot to get to, and uh, we will get to all of you that are holding Deborah, Allen, Mike, Michael, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So um, there is a very sad situation, and I've had this on my list for a week now, but It's such a downer that I've been trying to avoid talking about it, but I do want to talk about it. But at least as of a week ago, at least seven people were shot, one fatally, for showing up at the wrong place in separate incidents over the course of just six days in the month of April. Now, think about that. At least seven people shot. For showing up at the wrong place. These are not criminals. These are not someone that were committing a crime. These are somebody that walked into the wrong place or went to the wrong place and was shot. In six days. I realize it's a country of 300 million people, but I think that's pretty frightening. You had Kaylin Gillis, 20 years old, shot and killed in New York State as a car she was traveling in turned around in a stranger's driveway. Ralph Jarl, 16, shot in Kansas City, Missouri, after ringing the wrong doorbell. Peyton Washington, 18 years old, and Heather Roth were shot in Texas after Washington accidentally got into and then quickly exited a stranger's car in a parking lot. I've done that. I did that recently. I walked up to a car that I thought was mine. It was another white SUV. I started to get in the driver's side door. A guy started yelling at me. Now, he didn't shoot me, thankfully, but I, I, it was very relatable. In North Carolina, where we're very proud to now be on the air, in New Bern, North Carolina, uh, that's where we're on the air. That's not where this incident occurred. But in North Carolina, when children went to retrieve a basketball from a stranger's backyard, 
he came out of his house with a gun and fired, striking six-year-old Kinsley White and her father. These kinds of um, wrong place shootings really are not that common. Unlike the mass shootings that I don't talk about, which happen almost every day, these ma- these wrong place, wrong time shootings are are relatively insignificant statistically. They're insignificant statistically until that's your six-year-old son that's shot. Um, related to, anyway, the larger backdrop of gun violence. But that's a big backdrop. Even a small fraction of 49,000 gun deaths per year adds up. So in the New York Times, they tell the story of several other people who were shot by trigger-happy residents when they were either lost or mistaken as a threat, including utility and maintenance workers on the job. And while wrong place shootings are rare, it's common for gun violence to erupt over relatively petty manners. The Marshall Project, they um, one of their reporters, Joaquin Maris, did some reporting a few years ago about one St. Louis man who told him that he'd seen guns pulled over a cigarillo, literally pennies worth of flavored tobacco. Shortly after Yarl was shot in uh, was shot in Missouri, the Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves said that investigators would consider whether the shooter, 84-year-old Andrew Lester, might be protected by the state's stand-your-ground law. So, um, I don't know. Jacob Sullum, who's the senior editor for Reason, which is sort of a libertarian news publication, Jacob Sullum argues that none of the alleged shooters in these high-profile cases are likely to attempt or successfully mount a stand-your-ground defense. Jacob Sullum identifies what he calls long-standing journalistic confusion on the subject, which misrepresents such laws as a license to kill anyone who looks at you cross-eyed. So Solemn, I think, is afraid that they may use these incidents of the wrong people being shot at the wrong time to attack the stand-your-ground laws. But stand-your-ground, I guess the most famous case where it was, where, where I first heard it mentioned, really, was the Trayvon Martin case. And it was not actually invoked in the defense of uh, George Zimmerman. And that was a successful defense. He was acquitted after he killed Trayvon Martin. Nevertheless, it's the case that introduced many of us, myself included, to that legal concept. So in today's conversation, when we use that phrase, stand your ground, that in some ways is not just a legal doctrine. It's become sort of a stand-in for a cultural phenomenon of fear and what some people might describe as preemptive aggression. So Joshua Horwitz, a gun violence researcher at Johns Hopkins University, told ABC News, we are seeing the idea that we are a shoot-first culture. Everybody seems to be afraid. They've been told to be afraid. A grandson of the man, we talked about this at the time, who shot Jarl said that his grandfather had become immersed in a 24-hour news cycle of fear and paranoia. Now, a lot of that fear is about crime. And as Washington Post columnist Philip Bump put it, there is a tragic logic to these wrong place shootings. Overzealous self-defense becomes a part of daily life 
in a society in which gun ownership is common, in which guns are seen as necessary tools for self-defense against crime, and in which crime is depicted as surging. So I don't know what the solution to these incidents are because I don't want to overstate the problem because I don't want to be part of the problem. Part of my belief as to why this is happening is because people are terrified. Maybe with reason, maybe maybe the reason is exaggerated, but people are, are, are afraid that something bad's going to happen to them. And before they let something bad happen to them, they're going to shoot the person that they think might be committing that crime. So beyond that, and that's why my belief in um, how to end, not end, but at least reduce these wrong place shootings, we'll call them, is to get people to watch less of the cable news. Because you watch less cable news, you will not think the country is as dangerous as if you watch more cable news. And it's not just cable. There's a lot of local news that feeds into that fear, fright, hysteria, and hype, as my colleague Curtis Lewa likes to call it. That's part of my solution. But what else would you do about this? I mean, I don't know when we're talking uh, just a handful of incidents if it makes sense to come up with a strategy to prevent this from happening. But as I said, when it's your six-year-old that gets shot, I think it does make sense to come up with some sort of a strategy to make sure people aren't being shot for ringing the wrong doorbell or getting into the wrong car. So what do you do? How do you prevent it? Because I really do think all of these instances where the shooter shot these innocent people, I, I don't think these were bad people. I think these were normal, law-abiding citizens that believed they were in danger. I think they were terrified. In the case of uh, Mr. Yarl's um, shooting, we know it was because this 84-year-old, we don't know, but his grandfather, uh, his grandson says, this 84-year-old that shot him was just sucked in to this news cycle. So beyond my solution which is watch less news so that you're not terrified all the time. What would you suggest about how to obviate this problem of people getting shown, shot for showing up in the wrong place? 800 I'll tell you one theme in a lot of these recent wrong place shootings that's worth noting is youth. Of the shootings that have captured attention... In the last month, all but one of the victims was under the age of 21 or they were 21 or younger. So while there's no evidence that young people are more likely to be victimized by this specific type of violence, gun deaths among minors are on the rise. And now some of that's due to gangs. Some of that's due to other factors. But according to the CDC, the number of children and teens who died from gunshot wounds rose 50 percent between 2019 and 2021 with gun violence overtaking car accidents as their leading cause of death. In a recent analysis of shootings in four major children, four major cities, black children are very likely to be victims of gun assaults, much more so than white children. And I, I don't like to make everything a racial issue, but this is also a this is also a big problem in America, the U.S. Counts, accounts for 97 percent 
of all child and teen firearm deaths. Now, we have seen mass shootings happen in other places. They can happen in Serbia. They can happen in Australia. They can happen in other places. But we are leading the world in young people being shot to death. It's nothing to be proud of. So, I, I, obviously, I know there's a lot of solutions to the youth violence situation. But I want to talk about this specific type of shooting. The wrong place shooting. Let's say we made you dictator for a day. You can pass one law, you can pass 20 laws, or maybe it's not even a legal thing. Maybe it's a cultural thing. What do you do to stop this? Because I don't think anybody should ever be shot. Certainly nobody should ever be killed for showing up in the wrong place. So how do you make sure this doesn't happen again? What do you do? It's on you. 800-848-9222-123-4 open lines. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on anything we've covered thus far as well. Uh, I, I got some interesting statistics that I'll share with you, but we have a lot of mail to get to. I'm looking at stacks and stacks of mail, and I want to try and get to as many of it as possible. Uh, Mike is in Woodside. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. You know, uh, I was listening to your earlier guest. We were talking about uh, Fox and the uh, and the ratings there. I took a look at it, and I sent you it in an email, the uh, Nielsen numbers. From May 5th, uh, the old Tucker Carlson slot is at number 40 uh, in cable uh, ratings overall for, for the 8 p.m. slot. And that's, that's almost unthinkable, you know, that that slot could fall that low. They're probably putting uh, you know, home TV shopping on next on that, on that time slot because it's uh, – that's pretty low, you know, the fall of the 40th place in cable news ratings. Now, on the shootings and, and that issue, uh, you've got to look at it from, from a perspective of, you know, are people getting shot at? My brother drives for a, a grocery chain uh, in Texas and does home deliveries to these rural areas. What they teach their drivers to do when they, you know, when they deliver the groceries, because these are farms, these are far rural communities, many of them are having trouble with people crossing the border illegally, stealing clothes, doing things, you know, that type of thing in their neighborhood. So when, when he delivers groceries, he actually carries a placard, you know, like a, like a picket sign that says groceries, grocery delivery. And he walks towards the house you know, with this sign held up above his head and makes sure that he doesn't drive into the driveway with a delivery truck until, uh, you know, people know that, hey, I'm just here to deliver groceries. But I'll tell you this, it is Texas, and yeah, he does have uh, something strapped on. Oh, I'm sure. To be able to protect himself in those rural areas. But, and, and, and more importantly, my brother is uh, an Army veteran, you know, so, so he did serve in the 25th Infantry Division out in, uh, out in Hawaii, Scofield Barrett, for a long time. So he knows, you know, how to properly use a firearm and all that and identify himself. But that is one of the steps that he takes, and many of the other delivery drivers are taking in rural places like in Texas. They literally carry a sign. And says grocery delivery. They don't want to get shot. I believe it. And thank you, Mike. But the people like your brother and other grocery delivery folks, they are aware of the danger and they're taking proper precautions. I think once you're aware of the danger and maybe that's maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe we have to teach people not to use someone's driveway to make a turn. Maybe we have to teach people that under no circumstances should you ring the wrong doorbell. You know, I've done this. I've slept in the wrong house at times. I have uh, rung the wrong – I've walked into the wrong house at, at other times. And I did that once in Pe- Pennsylvania visiting some family. And my Uncle Joe, who's a gun owner, he said, hey, you got to be careful. They will shoot you out here. Now, I- imagine if 
I, being a little younger and a little bit more black, fit a profile of someone that the media has trained you to be afraid of. And, I, and I'm not saying that 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 people are racist because they engage in this thing, but I think even a lot of black folks would say that if a young black male that you're not expecting walks into your house in the middle of the night, that that is a more frightening situation for some than an older white male, right? I don't think it's being racist by saying that. I think even Jesse Jackson has said something like that. 800-848-9222, Tom is in Toronto. Well, actually, before we get to Tom, that reminds me, because uh, Toronto is, still recognizes uh, King Charles as their head of state. This is a statistic that I was looking for before. When King Charles was born, roughly 35% of the world's population lived under some form of monarchy. By Saturday, the time of his coronation, just 9% of the world residents live under monarchy. So under just a few short decades, we've gone from 35% of the world having a a monarch to only 9%. And although various types of political systems function under these monarchies, including the constitutional monarchies that the UK has, that Japan has, there are still 14 true monarchies where the head of the royal family wields political and economic power. You got Bahrain, you got Bhutan, you got Brunei, you have Jordan, Kuwait, Monaco, Morocco, Oman, Qatar, or Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Tonga, United Arab Emirates. But that makes up just 1.4% of the world's population. And look, there's a reason for that. Monarchies make no sense. Let people pick their leaders or vote themselves. Tom, in uh, Toronto, how do you like being a royal subject? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, the bang for the buck has really gone down. It's not what it perhaps once was. Interesting. But I could go on a long time on that topic. I'd like to respond to that, um, the one that you've been talking yeah, about ahead, just please. now. Uh, I'd like to cite Robert Putnam at Harvard in Bowling Alone and mm-hmm. also Charles Murray at the American Enterprise Institute. So you've got two opposite sides of the conventional sure. spectrum. And what they both cite is a drop in trust and uh, social cohesion, which is a consequence of diversity. And, uh, and I'm sorry, this is a fact that a lot of people don't like. It's unpalatable, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but this is also happening here up north. As the diversity is going up, whites themselves are behaving differently. And where they used to be more trustful and they would take certain things for granted, they're not as much. And it affects uh, not only how they interact with, quote, other races, but also with one another. And I think what you're seeing in the States is a consequence in part of that, although there are other factors too. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Alan is in Orange. Hello, Alan. Hey, Frank. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Thanks. Good. So as I was listening to you, um, you know, uh, have your segment on on the coronation and all that, uh, it dawned on me that really what the monarchy in Britain has become is more of social ambassadors, you know, akin to maybe the pope in Italy although he sort of doesn't run a country, but he runs a religion. Uh, So, you know, if if the Britons want to pay for that kind of thing, they'll keep doing it. I don't disagree. Thank you for the call, Alan. I don't disagree with you. But why should we care? Why should my favorite TV show be preempted 
for this wall-to-wall hyperbolic coverage of a coronation that doesn't affect us. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, let me comment on two things. One, the subject and the interview. Uh, On the subject you're talking about where you just walk into something accidentally, like a deli or a bar, it could also be a knife, not just a gun. And there's nothing you can do to stop it from happening again. Uh, Unfortunately, it's nightmarish. On the interview, I would say when you guys are talking about, you know, Tucker can make this money, two points on that. Number one is Tucker Carlson's already got probably $50 plus. What he needs to be concerned about is just his health, to, you know, they stay as healthy and can enjoy it. And his audience could care less about what he makes. They just care about being, uh, uh, you, you know, kicked off their uh, hearing their favorite uh, commentator. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you, Joe. I feel the same way about media commentators, thanks for the call, that I do about baseball players, right? If I'm a fan of you as a as a, an athlete, a professional athlete, I don't care too much what you're making. I mean, if you're a bum, it does become very, uh, very tempting to say, they're paying this guy $50 million and he's hitting two fifty. That uh, There is a little bit of pleasure in saying that. But yeah, I would watch Tucker's show whether, um, you know, look, radio is the same way. I have colleagues that are making significantly more money uh, than than I am. And you know what? Good for them. I don't begrudge them that. Uh, But I don't make a decision about whether to listen to someone on the radio or watch someone on cable news based on what they're making. If they're making a lot of money, good for them. But if I find their show interesting, then... I'm going to watch it. If I don't find their show interesting, or I, or I won't watch it or listen to it. 800-848-9222. Abe is in Manhattan. Hello, Abe. Hi, Frank. It's Abe. Did you ever read my email that I sent you? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. What was the what was it, was it about? Email. You had a program on the Iraq War, which I thought was very um, – I had a lot of respect for you for oh, that. Thank you. I think I probably read it on air if it was complimentary or even if it wasn't. Well, I, I, I was complimentary to you in the sense that you were talking about the subject and raising really very important. It's a pivotal. And I and I wrote to you a few books. One of them was Dark Ages America by Morris Berman. And one of the chapters in it, he wrote that in 2006. One of the truly great historians and social critics who now lives in Mexico. Why? Because he got the hell out of the country. Mm. Now, because one of the stories he gave, Frank, he was living in Washington, D.C. He is an incredible writer. I hope you pick up one of his books. But he he said he's in the, he's in his uh, um, hallway going into his apartment and he asked for some help. Put something, carrying something. He was, he heard his leg. Nobody bothered to help him or even mm. respond. Why? Cultural. Okay, so when you talk about this issue, please name me, Frank. You're smart. I respect you. Um, what other country in the world has this issue? Oh, well, I just said we have 97% of the youth gun deaths in the world. Well, not just youth. I mean, we just had 
three mass murders in what in tech in, in texas the gun carry state yeah. come on this is sickness it is a cultural sickness and why do you think it is abe what's the cause do you think well 400 million guns so it was just too many guns let me let me give you one analysis in 1996 in australia Australia has a gun culture, doesn't it? I, to the, I think so. Okay. I, mean, I don't. I'd be lying if I said I was an expert. I don't know. I'm not saying you're an expert. Mm-hmm. I'm just. I'm not either. But I've read. So look it up. 1996 in Australia, they have a gun culture. Well, their prime minister or president, after they had a mass murder, what did they do? Well, they clamped down on a lot of gun uh, – with a lot have of new gun restrictions. Since then? I beg your pardon? Have they had a mass murder since then? N- not not to my knowledge, no. Well, that's called – you know what that's called? Common sense. Yeah, well, th- but, th- but thank, thank you, Abe. You know, I, I don't think uh, – thank you. You know, we've we've talked about that before. I don't think that really specifically – deals with the issue of these wrong place shootings. Although maybe it does. If you're talking about wanting to disarm everybody, then I guess you wouldn't have a gun to uh, to shoot someone. But uh, I, um, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's an appetite to do that in this country at all. So um, I, I don't think that's going to be happening here anytime soon. If it didn't happen a- after Sandy Hook, I don't, I don't see it happening anytime soon. All right. Uh, thank you for the call, Abe. All right. Without further ado, we're going to go through your letters momentarily. We have email. We have text messages. We have snail mail. If you want to get your letter read, uh, you can email me at frank.morano. That's frank.m-o-r-a-n-o at Red Apple Audio Networks.com. That's Frank dot M O R A N O at Red Apple Audio Networks.com. All right, we'll read your mail, go through it all straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The great Billy Joel uh, celebrating his birthday today. Happy birthday, Billy Joel. I believe he is 74 years old today. Looks great for 74. Certainly sounds great. All right. Uh, without further ado, we have a lot of letters to get to. We're going to try and get to as many as we can, and uh, we may have to carry this over because I've been negligent in not getting to as many of these as I would like. So without further ado, let's go through. Letters. Oh, we get letters. We get your letters every day. Mailman, mailman, mail today. Reach right in and pull one out. Those letters. I love those letters. Let's find out what you've got to say. All right, uh, this is from E.M. Wolf, Mountainside, New Jersey. Hello, Frank Morano. Regarding your mother's dog, they have and have had a long-time video, videos for dogs to keep them company. Oh, so please entertain him or her. That's good to know. Next time I am dog-sitting Watson, I will do that. Email, this is from Jay. Hey, Frank, love you, brother. As you may know, I... How would I know? <laughs> he begins this email. As you may know. No, Jay, I've never met you before. How would I know? As you may know, I have studied AI extensively. Oh, you're that, Jay. Oh, okay. Uh, I cannot tell you how deeply disastrous and clueless this decision will prove to be. The White House has decided to meet with AI leaders like Google and Microsoft, but they are putting Kamala in charge. I don't want to live on this planet anymore. Well, don't say that. And then the next, and then it includes an article to Kamala Harris being put in. Love to Carmine and Rachel. Okay, well, I'm glad you at least ended it on a upbeat note. All right. This is, uh, boy, this is something. This is... An email. This is a snail mail to my attention. This is from Fort Dix in New Jersey, which is a prison. Uh, Dear sir, I recently mailed you and emailed you, and he gives his email address, and told you I am from Fort Dix Federal Correctional. Enclosed is a copy of a letter I had sent to, and then he mentions another talk show host that I work with. I won't name him. Like you, he was contacted and asked him if he was interested in doing a show on prison reform, not bail reform. First of all, to this person, uh, he doesn't sign his name. I didn't get your email. So send that again, frank.morano at redappleaudionetwork.com. I asked him if he was interested in doing a show on prison reform, not bail reform. He chose not to answer me. And the only answer I received from him was, society thinks we have a lot already. Needless to say, that's not the response we expected to hear. He lost about 100 listeners from one building alone. While I was listening to your show one night, I heard you say hello to all your federal and state prisoners, and that's when I thought we would mail you and take a shot. I hope that maybe you could do a show one time on prison reform with ex-federal and state prisoners voicing their opinions as well. I don't mind if other listeners call in. Well, thank you. Um, with their voice as well, I would just like for ex-prisoners get a voice as well. Please leave my name out as I worry about retribution from staff. If you plan to answer on air, can you please notify me so I can make sure we all tune in? Again, thank you and look forward to your answer. Um, to this person, uh, and I appreciate such a thoughtful email and such good handwriting. 
I have done shows on prison reform. I've done hours repeatedly with ex-felons, uh, some of whom happen to be ex-lawyers. And you know what? We will do so again in the future. This is email. Um, the, uh, no, we'll skip that. Uh, hey, Frank. This is... Um, I was able to catch a little of the beginning of your show last night and was really interested in the PTSD in the Civil War. Sounded like a very interesting story. Unfortunately, I missed it as I had to crash, LOL. Is there any way I can listen to or, or a show or see a transcript? Not sure if that's possible, the thought I'd, ma- I'd ask. You had mentioned that you didn't vote for Trump and weren't a Republican. I was just curious as to what party you affiliate with. I'm actually not political at all. I'm a musician and real estate agent, but was just curious. I did vote for Trump, even though he can be a misogynistic ass. I just felt that he was the best choice. I just couldn't and can't take Biden seriously. Uh, first of all, Adam, just so the record's clear, I did vote for Trump twice. I said he's not my first choice for 2024, but I did vote for Trump. Whenever you miss a show... Whether you miss a segment on a show or you miss a whole show, the best place you can go to is Red App. Just search The Other Side of Midnight in any podcast app, or you can go to RedAppleAudioNetwork.com, RedApplePodcastNetwork.com, excuse me, RedApplePodcastNetwork.com. Search The Other Side of Midnight, and uh, you can listen to that. All right, this is a song written via snail mail. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Murano. It's spelled M-U-R-A-N-O. He's on the other side. Oh, yes, that's right. I don't know if this is a song or a poem. He's on the other side. Oh, yes, that's right. That's 770 ABC 1 to 5, his weekly radio ride to educate us all to down those walls, listening to his show so we will all grow. Does his show with pride, takes callers in their stride. Now as this to end, radio, Frank is our radio friend. It's the Frank Morano show, now spelled correctly. Uh, the only way to go. So long, Curtis. It's time for you to go. You have had a long ride, so now just say goodbye. It's now Frank Morano. All right. Well, that's very nice. Very thoughtful, very creative. It's better than what I've seen from AI of late, that's for sure. Ask Frank anything question. Uh, I heard the last minute. Of uh, Dominic Carter's show, that's a show on WABC in New York, on 10-minute delay. You blamed de Blasio for bungling mental health policy. If you already covered it and I, and I missed it, disregard the question. Otherwise, in your opinion, what was wrong with de Blasio's approach to treating the mentally ill? That is a brilliant question, and I'm not going to make this too local, but I'm glad I, I do want to mention this because I know we have listeners all over the country. This is a national problem. And de Blasio's failures of the mental health problem are being replicated in city after city. It comes down to this. De Blasio and his wife had an incredible opportunity because they made mental health an issue, but they completely miss, uh, missed the mark in terms of where they were challenging and where they were marshalling their resources. Additionally, they had the funding to really do some good. So they had they launched something called Thrive NYC, which was supposed to be about mentally ill. The reality is everybody's mental health can be improved. Mine, yours, everybody's. There is a very, very small percentage of the population that is seriously or violently mentally ill. That's where the resources need to need to be focused. That's where the resources need to go. 
schizophrenia or violent mental illness is not a civil right to be protected. It is an illness to be treated. So what they did, they threw money to billboard TV ads. They threw money to um, to basically uh, to all the wrong areas. We needed money used to go to Kendra's Law. We needed money to go to hospitals. They closed hospitals because that was not where they were. We needed money to go to housing. 18% have something in the DSM-5. 4% have serious mental illness. It's the seriously ill who become homeless, hospitalized, suicidal, and violent without treatment. We should focus the mental health budget on them. That's where a billion dollars should have gone. 4% of the population. Thrive NYC focused on, I don't even know what you call it, pop psychology for the highest functioning. Not treatment for the seriously ill. Thrive, at, which was the hallmark of the de Blasio administration, funded prevention. But serious mental illness can't be prevented because we don't know what causes it. We don't know why someone's schizophrenic. Thrive funded early intervention, but we can't predict who's going to become seriously ill, mentally ill, until after the symptoms first appear, which is usually the late 20s and early teens. Thrive funded what they call trauma, but trauma is not a mental illness. Everyone loses a loved one. Everyone loses a job. Everyone experiences accidents. PTSD is mental illness, and even that runs from mild to severe. Thrive was the worst thing ever to happen to mental health treatment in the city in which I live. Thrive diverted mental health funds to programs that don't help the seriously mentally ill. And they took that money away from programs that would have helped the seriously mentally ill. I could go on, and there's a wonderful website that uh, deals with how cities, how states, and how the country should be dealing with this. It's uh, mentalillnesspolicy.org. And unfortunately, the founder of that, DJ Jaffe, passed away. But I interviewed him many times before he died, a brilliant man whose brother, I believe, was seriously mentally ill. And uh, he had the right idea. And unfortunately, de Blasio had an incredible opportunity, and he completely, completely bungled it. Okay, what else do we have here? All right, well, I got a lot of other ones I want to get to here. Uh, this is from George in Alaska. Uh, listening on KYBR in Alaska. Uh, George asks, Frank, uh, I'm a relatively, uh, uh, yeah, I'm a relatively new listener to your show. You mentioned that you voted for Donald Trump. I voted for him too. I find a lot of his phrases and sayings quite funny. Do you have a favorite Trumpism? That is an outstanding question. And I looked at this before the show. I do have a favorite Trumpism, but it's a it's a two-parter, okay? And I went back and found at least one of these. And it's from February of 2016, right after President Trump won the Nevada primary or Nevada caucus, very hotly contested Nevada caucus. And he made the the following quip as he was listing all of the demographic groups that he won with. Listen to what he said. We won the evangelicals. We won with young. 
We won with old. We won with highly educated. We won with poorly educated. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Now, I loved that. I loved it. I thought it was the funniest thing I ever heard. But it became a uh, a joke after that. And you can understand why, because it's funny the way he said it. I love the poorly educated. So then a few days later, Donald Trump back then was doing three, four, sometimes five rallies in a day. Then the following Saturday, that was on a Tuesday night, I think. And then the following Saturday, he's doing a rally somewhere. I don't remember where, if it was Texas, if it was Georgia, if it was Oklahoma. I don't know. And I'm listening to this on the radio, and I guess I knew what Trump meant to say, which is he won with people that aren't just elitists. He won with every background. But the way that he said it, the way that he tried to backtrack was even better because he knew, okay, they made fun of me for saying it the way I said it. I want to say the same thing, but let me say it a little differently, okay? So what he came up with was this, and I remember this vividly. It was seven years ago, but I remember it vividly. And this, in tandem with the clip I just played you, is my favorite Trumpism. He's again listing, and I tried to find the audio of this. I couldn't find it. But he's again listing all of the groups that he won with. And he actually says, we won with highly educated. We won with okay education. Then he says, we won with uh, people that maybe didn't do so much with the education, but they're doing great now. (laughs) And for whatever reason, that struck me as so funny that these people that voted for him, he doesn't know them. He doesn't know if they're doing great now, but because they voted for him, they're doing great now. So I couldn't find that clip, but I remember him saying it, unless I created this in my own brain. Uh, okay, education, people that didn't do so much with the education, but they're doing them great now. But he did that same day at a rally in Georgia say something similar, not as funny as the way I remember it, but at another rally on uh, February 26, 2016, he said something similar. We're winning with old. We're winning with young. We're winning with highly educated. We're will Right? We're winning with a little bit less than highly educated, which is okay. I love you. And we're winning with the veterans. I love the veterans. We're winning with the military. In other words, we're winning with everybody. There you go. All right. So that that is my favorite Trumpism. All right. I want to go through a couple more of these. So there's some good ones. All right. From Facebook, Jerry asks, Frank, my question for you is this. Did you smoke cigarettes before stogies? What inspired you to stogie? No, uh, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. I I find it revolting. Um, You know, I guess two factors. Uh, One, I just always loved the smell of a cigar. Uh, From the time I was a kid, I just loved the smell of a cigar. My neighbor, Stuart, used to smoke cigars. I think he still does. And I loved the smell. He'd sit out on his stoop, and I would be out there on my stoop just to breathe in the scent. My father smoked, uh, smokes cigars, loved it when he smelled it. My Uncle Joe, same thing. I just love the, uh, love the smell. All right, uh, John writes, hey, Frank, I just saw that May 4th is Star Wars Day. Uh, I, I like some of Star Wars, maybe some show fodder. Also, I see Kevin Costner is getting divorced from his wife, who's 19 years his junior. Is that too much of an age difference? Well, um, I like Star Wars a lot. I haven't seen any of these TV shows, but I do like the movies. The formula for what's appropriate age is um, 
was formulated by Tommy Barlotta. And Tommy Barlotta says what it is is it's one a half your age plus nine. That's the youngest you can go. Half your age plus nine. But you can uh, also, that is variable depending on wealth and fame. Okay. Uh, two more. Michael writes, Frank, what's the meanest thing you've ever said? Frank made me LOL long ago when I heard him say, for every Ellen Metzger, you have a barb pace. Frank, that was rude and so out of character for you. First of all, it was not that rude. Uh, it was it was funny. I mean, it was a kind of a gentle dig. Second, I think that, um, you know, if you think see the things that Barb writes about her political adversaries, it was not a big deal at all. All right. Penultimate email here. Uh, John writes, Frank, great interview with Richard Dolan last night. I met him back in 2008 and 2015, first when I went to a UFO conference, and second when I attended to ma- uh, attempted to make a clothing line to get the truth out about UFOs called Disclosure Gear. I read his books on UFOs, and the National Security State also took his college course on the history of the subject. This was right before I became involved in EMT slash police work. Uh, did you see... Moment of Contact by James Fox. I've done my homework. If this is a true story, absolutely fascinating. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I have not seen it. It is on my list, though, uh, John. Uh, Denise writes, hey, Frank, you are a hero. Not easy, easy to tackle the cruelty of horse racing when so many out there, mostly men, are jerks. You maintained a good stance, allowing people to say what they felt. I was glad to see a few men got it. Keep on doing these tricky and worthwhile segments. All right. If we didn't get to your message today, hopefully we will on the next edition of. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I've got another confession to make. I'm your fool. Everyone's got the chains to break. Holding you. Will you bother me This is The Best of You by the Foo Fighters. This was a special uh, birthday bumper music request from my neighbor, Nick Prinzavalli, who's a great guy. Uh, we're, we're very friendly with he and his wife, Tara. And uh, tomorrow, Nick turns 40. So um, sometimes it takes us a couple of days to get our birthday bumper music requests honored. But so be it. Hey, you know who else's birthday today it is? I wanted to mention this. Janet. Janet, one of our great listeners from New Jersey. And she, I didn't get to read this on air while we were going through the mail. She just sent me a box of some very nice cigars here, along with a small mini container of rum. So that's very nice, Janet. I do hope that uh, the powers that be will see fit to... Play your birthday bumper music selection. And if uh, the weather permits today, I will smoke one of you. And she also sent what looks like a, a, uh, a book for Carmine. Oh, this is nice. 
Polka Dot Old McDonald's Farm. Oh, this is fun. With this can maybe replace his Goldilocks book, which he vomited all over and still smells of vomit. Polka Dot Old McDonald's Farm. All right. Thank you very much, Janet. That's very, very generous of you. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we are doing, that's 800-848-9222. I uh, did want to let everybody know that my wife's Instagram is still hacked. There is no need to ask her if she reaches out to you to sell clothing or to get her get you to invest in some sort of foreign exchange foreign currency situation there is no need to let her know she's been hacked she is aware that she has been hacked best thing you could do is just uh, not click anything from her I posted an update on my Instagram at Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. And we're hoping that more and more people will let um, Instagram or Meta know because they say sometimes this can take weeks. So I'm hoping it doesn't take weeks. Now, the other thing, what I am going to be doing within the next couple of days, I am going to be nominating the the venerable, legendary radio broadcaster John R. Gambling to the uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame. And I've talked about this before. Uh, And the procedure for nominating a star, and radio is a category for the Walk of Fame, and they have not had a lot of great radio stars the last few years, especially in the talk era. So that is one of the categories that in the last couple years has been kind of ignored. And I am going to nominate John Gambling, but there's a lot of other folks that deserve nomination. For instance, Curtis Lewa, a, a tremendous radio star. I think would love to see him get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Now, I don't think that Curtis can afford a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and I'm not being facetious. But it does cost a lot of money. It costs about $75,000. And if you read some of what Curtis has to deal with financially, I don't know that he's got $75,000 laying around. But uh, maybe we can raise the money for him if he gets accepted. Also, Joe Piscopo, he does not have a star on either radio or television or cinema. I think you could make a credible case that he could have a star on each. And um, Barry Farber who was another great radio legend, no star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to nominate John Gambling uh, for this star. But if you want to nominate anybody else that I just mentioned, Curtis Sliwa, Joe Piscopo, Barry Farber, even the great Bob Grant, although I don't know who's, it would have to be a fan-run effort if we're going to do Bob Grant. I am going to post the information on how to nominate a star and if you want to nominate one of these other folks i think it would go i think it would be a really nice thing so i just posted that at facebook.com slash morano fan the nomination procedure the deadline is may 31st i'm going to nominate john gambling but hopefully you can nominate one of these other folks uh, because there's a lot of other folks worthy of recognition especially in the radio area until next hour help control the pet population get your dog or cat spayed or neutered This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. 
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. One of my favorite guests also happens to be one of my favorite writers, uh, Lenore Skenazy, and she's become, really, one of my favorite uh, a- one of my favorite activists as well. She was the mother of this movement that uh, came about about 12 years ago called Free Range Parenting. Now they um, they call they, that's still the name of the movement, and uh, she's written a book by that title, Free Range Kids, and she's got a great group called LetGrow.org, and she writes an occasional column. She had a column in the New York Post over the weekend, and you could read her uh, com- column on LetGrow.org. And there was a question that that a mom, or I don't know if it's a mom, a parent, sent in to Lenore, and I thought it was a good question. And I suspect it's a question that I'm going to be facing as the father of someone that's two years, that will soon be two years old, and that will probably put in daycare at least a portion of the day. And I figured I'd read you the question. I'd invite you to give an answer to this question. And then I would uh, read you Lenore's answer. Dear Let Grow, first of all, Thank you so much for the work you have been doing. I just finished reading Free Range Kids, and it was such an eye-opener. Since I am unsure whether I am overreacting, I would like to ask you for your opinion on this situation. My son is turning two at the end of this month and has been going to daycare here in Australia for three weeks now. Yesterday, they had a lockdown simulation at the child care center pretending pretending a perpetrator had entered the premises The educators gathered all children in a small locked-up room and told them, shh, someone is coming. I honestly dislike the idea, this is all part of the letter, I honestly dislike the idea of my little son having to hide in a locked room thinking that a bad person might come to get him. I find it disturbing. I understand that there are crazy people out there and that anything can happen, But I dare to believe that the chance of somebody wanting to do something this horrible and actually making it through the high walls, fences, the security code, and the staff members of Child Care Center is extremely slim. So I don't want them to unnecessarily instill fear in children by doing these drills. What are your thoughts? What would you answer this person? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. I'm going to read you Lenore and I'll give you my take. But I'd love to hear your answer to this question. Should two-year-olds have lockdown drills? My view is absolutely not. 100% absolutely not. I think that the damage you do to a two-year-old and his psyche And how much you frighten a two-year-old by instilling in their brain the possibility that someone evil is going to come into their daycare center, get past all the security, and, and hurt them. I think the likelihood of trauma that that lesson, that lockdown drill will instill in a two-year-old is far greater and far more realistic than the likelihood that a perpetrator is actually going to make their way into a daycare center. My view, vote is absolutely nothing. Now, as a parent, I want to make sure the daycare center that I am uh, sending my child to has proper security. 
I want to make sure there's uh, precautions in place by the adults that are running this child care center to make sure that nothing like this happens, that a stranger can't get in, that only authorized people can get in. But that's something that I, as a parent, will deal with in conjunction with the leadership of the daycare center. That is not something I want my two-year-old worrying about at all. You know, it's funny. One of the uh, recent episodes of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, they're, they're, one of the characters is a little boy. He's five or six years old. And he is afraid to sleep in his own bed. And his grandfather frightens him into all the other frightening things that could be happening in the world. And he, the grandfather basically says, all right, you, you know, you're screwed no matter what. There's all the, 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 and he lists all these 20 things that could happen. And he frightens the kid to death. Not to death, but he frightens the kid. I remember when I was in kindergarten. So what are you in kindergarten? Five years old? They used to have somebody come on the bus and give you safety instructions. And I remember five or six years old when they would say, all right, this is what you do in the event that the bus flips over. I would be terrified every time that I took that bus thinking, oh, my goodness, that bus is going to flip over. I never knew the bus could flip over. Now, that's at five years old. And I guess it's good that they taught me the lesson because I knew to go out the roof hatch. And lo and behold, all of my days taking a school bus, not once did the bus ever tip over. But I guess it's good that I learned that. But I will tell you, I don't remember anything from kindergarten. I remember my kindergarten teacher's name, Mrs. Paglia. But I don't remember anything that I learned there. But I remember vividly. Remember, like it was yesterday, them telling me, this is what you do when the bus flips over. And I was frightened, incredibly frightened. And, you know, another thing, there was another day, you know, when you're in kindergarten, you're dealing with five-year-olds, right? So there was another day when one of these five-year-olds, another one, not me, was crying. And nobody really knew why he was crying. So I said to another one of my classmates in the kindergarten class, I said, well, you know, maybe he's afraid that the school bus he takes is going to flip over. And the other kid finished my sentence. He said, and whatever it was that they that they described, flip over or catch on fire. And I said, you're afraid of that too? He says, yeah. I think about it all the time now. They frightened all of us five-year-olds. And again, I don't know why that other five-year-old was crying. He could have peed his pants or had a finger painting uh, conflict. I don't know. But the fact that so many of us in that kindergarten class all had this idea inserted into our head was really, I don't want to say it was traumatizing because I went on with my life, but it was very disconcerting. Now, that's at five. There's a whole lot of time that between being two and five. So I would love to know your view. As far as I'm concerned, two years old, absolutely not. There are no, no lockdown drills. That's my answer. 800-848-9222. I'm going to take your calls in a moment, and I'm going to give you Lenore Skenazy's answer. She writes, I very much agree with you, meaning the parent. Thinking ahead to the absolutely worst-case scenario and believing that only this kind of overwhelming fear and pessimism keeps kids safe is a defining feature of our time. It's almost superstitious. If we act out a tragedy and actually suffer 
real tragedy will pass us over. But there's another more likely tragedy facing us, and that is raising kids to believe it's an awful world out there. Obviously, there are some sad, sick people, always have been. The worst school attack in America was in 1927. Focusing on these horrors and teaching our kids that it's a rotten world out there where trust is for saps, that kind of outlook actually has a name. It's called a negative primal. And then she goes on to say there's an unintended consequence of lockdown drills. A recent long-term study of kids raised with negative primals, like seeing the world as dangerous keeps me safe, found that it actually does the opposite of what parents hope. See, I didn't even know this. Uh, I, I, and, and I'm on the same page as Lenore, as usual. Regardless of occupation, more negative primals were almost never associated with better outcomes. Instead, they predicted less success, less job and life satisfaction, worse health, dramatically less flourishing, more negative emotion, more depression, and increased suicide attempts. That's from Jeremy Clifton and Peter Mindel. Of course, schools and daycare centers must take some basic precautions to keep kids safe, but a big one should be ensuring that they don't accidentally hurt kids' future health and happiness by turning them negative on the world. Completely agree. Completely agree. That's my view. What do you say? Is uh, two year old, two years old, too young to have a lockdown drill? One eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Bat Blaze, you care to weigh in on this? Yeah, I I was thinking about when I was in first grade, and uh, we used to have air raid drills for I guess because they were still having from World War Two, and I remember going in the hallway and you, and they would line you up against the wall and you have to put your head down in like the fetal position against the wall. And I didn't really comprehend at that age what it was about. In other words, I didn't think, go, oh, it's an air raid drill and the siren to go mm-hmm. and all that. I didn't, even in first grade, I didn't comprehend that, oh, we're doing this because we're going to get bombed by a plane. I didn't know that 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 was what the drill was for. I knew what a fire drill was. I think your situation with being afraid that the bus would be tipped over is more relatable than an air raid drill. And No, I do too. I do too. I'm not saying they shouldn't have had that school bus safety instruction. Right. But I think toddlers at two years old being scared that someone's going to come and shoot them is, is too much. So you, you agree with Lenore agree with, and me? Yeah, I agree, because that's something that's very relatable, that they know what a gun is, they know it can hurt you, and to think that someone's going to come after them with a gun, I think would could do trauma beyond belief of a two-year-old's mind. And in fairness, uh, based on what this Australian person said, they didn't necessarily specify gun. They, uh, they said, let me get the exact verbiage, because I don't want to create a... Uh, uh, the, the the educators gathered in a small locked up room and told them, shh, someone is coming. And the implication is that it's a bad man that wants to hurt you. Not they didn't specify gun necessarily. I still think um, okay. that you're you're correct. Yeah, I still still agree. Kenneth, you uh you you care to disagree? Uh, I mean, I see I see both sides of it because with the prevalence of mass shootings nowadays, I feel like in a way maybe they should be prepared for something like that. But the flip side of that is, like you guys are saying, they're only two years old. So 
if something were to go down, I'm sure the adults would know how to handle it and would be able to gather the kids into a room and have it locked down and whatnot and not have to go through a drill for something like that. I'd rather see the adults before or after school go through a uh, lockdown drill so right. that they know how to, how to behave and how to protect the children and protect themselves. But uh, I think the idea of terrifying a two-year-old over this is just insanity. I, I think it's – I don't want to say it's child abuse because I veer away from those kind of hyperbolic remarks. I tend to think actual child abuse is child abuse. But I think the damage that this could do to a two-year-old is staggering, absolutely staggering. 800-848-9222, what do you think? David is in Ramapo. Hello, David. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Not too bad, thank you. Um, yeah, so coming from a psychologist's standpoint, um, <clears throat> I think I would say that a thousand percent, I think that they should not have this. They're they're putting these kids into a situation where these kids have no idea what's going on, and these kids are just scared for no reason. They, uh, if they want to go ahead and have the teachers of this daycare um, primed and ready for any such situation, go ahead. But I don't think they should involve the kids in this. It can have so much the lasting impression and the the effects it could have later in life on a child when the child grows up could be very damaging to anybody. I, I Yeah, I, I think we're on exactly the same page for exactly the same reasons, David. Thank you for the call. Thank you for listening. Paul is in New Jersey. I think he may have a different take. Hello, Paul. Yeah, Frank, I, I'm tossed. I'm tossed between us being a parent. You know, like, what do you do? You're trying to teach the kid to be safe. And, you know, it's like, if you were home and you heard a, you know, something, a shooting going on at the school, wouldn't you want your kid to say, damn, maybe I should, you know, at two years old, I, I don't know. I don't know. Five years old, you want, you want caller said five years old. He remembers air raids from the 1960s because I remembered them. Well, and I always, well, first of all, I mean, I guess we could do a whole separate discussion about air raid drills. I, I really do wonder if we were attacked by the Russians you know, or, like, or the Koreans, what, 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 what would it actually have done? Mind. Right. Something it's embedded in your mind at, at five years old. What else can you remember at five years no, that's, old? Well, did? that's what I said. I don't remember anything, uh, you know, practically, yeah. except being afraid of that uh, school bus situation. Uh, so Paul yeah. is uh, is on the fence, it sounds like. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Morning. Uh, I definitely feel 100% that it's pathetic. To, first of all, two-year-olds can't do anything it, it, they, the adults have to do something. The two-year-olds are going to do what? They should be quiet. Well, I, I guess I guess you train them. The I, I, I guess exactly Secondly, that, right? I guess you train them to hide and be quiet. But they won't. They're going to freeze or, or go hysterical. They're two-year-olds. It, it, you see, it's very important, in my opinion, to understand how the child thinks. And many adults, including experts, I feel, don't think too much about that. There's a story that I read once, I think it was in Chicken Soup for the Soul or something like that, one of those books, about 25, 30 or more years ago, that they asked a seven-year-old boy if he can give uh, his blood to his uh, 11-year-old sister that unfortunately had leukemia. I think it was leukemia. 
And he was thinking about it. He said, I said yeah, nobody else can do it, he explained. Only he can help his sister. And he agreed to it. A half hour later, the mother or the father went over to the child. And the child, after the blood transfusion was finished, and the child started, like, well, mommy, how long will it take now till I die? Oh, man. See, the child figured, if you take the blood from me, I'm going to die. No adults thought of that. At, at many times adults and parents and so on don't understand they don't know. Well, you know what, Charles? The child will interpret. But it... Yeah, uh, thank you for the call, Charles. You know, in that case, of the example that you just gave, I can actually see that being an important teachable moment for a child, whereas, you know, you use that to teach a child that, yes, you can give blood and you're not going to die. That Because that's not a realistic fear. But it's also not a realistic fear that uh, you're going to have a perpetrator barge into a school. It, does it happen? Yes. It, it is statistically incredibly unlikely to happen. But statistically, you are going to have to give blood, and children should know that that's not something to be afraid of. So I don't think that the blood leukemia example, the giving blood, the leukemia situation, I don't think that's in the same ballpark as as this. I think teaching children not to be afraid of the doctor and routine medical care is a different ball game than teaching them, especially at two. I, I think two is just, I mean, it's ridiculous. But I think it's such a different ball game from teaching them to be afraid of the worst possible thing that can be that can happen. 800-848-9222. JR is in Brooklyn. JR, if memory serves, you're a police officer, right? That's correct. Great. Okay. So, so you have some authority I, on this. I am actually – yeah, so, so there is a – very positive element to this and i agree with it so like you said they're not they're not claiming shooter in the school they're saying someone's not someone's coming someone's coming so you have more than you realize incidents of a parent of a child showing up to take a child from that school and usually in a preschool setting you know there's an emergency contact that you know this could be a disgruntled parent Okay, this could be a, a, a wayward father showing up, trying to actually take the child, number one. Again, a rare case, but it happens more often than Well, you that's actually so, a lot more common than a school shooting. Right, than a school shooting. So they're telling these kids, listen, someone's here, someone's coming. Now, you don't know who that someone is. You don't know who that something is. They're not saying, oh, no, the monster is coming to eat us. That's not what they're – it doesn't claim that that's what they're doing, number one. Okay. Number two, you, you, a, a bad man could be coming anywhere. You could be in a supermarket. Oftentimes, you could be in a park with your two-year-old child, and a bad man can come walking into that park. Maybe he's not coming to cause violence. Maybe he's coming to cause some disturbance that you don't want with your child there. Your child will say, oh, yeah, bad man coming. Okay, let's, let's get safe. It's a safety precaution. It's not a fear tactic. Well, okay, you know, Jr. You actually make a very Another, compelling co- uh, case there. I, I can't, uh, I can't, you know. I think if it's handled in the kind of way that Jr. is saying, I mean, maybe I would think differently. I still, I still don't like it. I still don't like it. Honestly, I see what he's saying. Uh, it's just still not where I am. Rick is in Elmwood Park. Hello, Rick. Uh, question for you: Which do you think is worse, having a drill for kids once in a while, a few times a year? 
or telling them five days a week that the world is coming to an end because of global warming. Well, I don't think you should tell a two-year-old that either. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is Kings of Leon. This is another Nick Prinzavale birthday eve bumper music selection. We're still hoping to get Janet's uh, birthday bumper music selection in there. We're not sure if we're able to get the rights to it, but uh, we'll see where that goes. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, we were going to, um, you know, we we're going to talk about the situation involving tripping and falling and the impact that that has on our economy. But uh, let's, we'll hold that for tomorrow. A couple of other fun stories that I want to bring to your attention. A Dutch man named Jonathan has been threatened with a fine of over $110,000 if he does not cut it out with all the sperm donations. Listen to this. He is suspected of fathering at least 550 children globally by donating sperm. Now, that's incredible. That's more than uh, Nick Cannon. It's more than Genghis Khan. I mean, this guy is the biological father. All we know about him is his name, Jonathan, and his age, 41, of 550 children around the world. And they're now threatening to fine him if he donates again. He is he was banned from donating to fertility clinics in the Netherlands in 2017 after it emerged that he had fathered more than 100 children. But instead of stopping, he carried on donating sperm abroad and online. A court in The Hague has told him to provide a list of all the clinics he had used and to order them to destroy his sperm. The man was said to have misled... Hundreds of women. Dutch clinical guidelines state that a donor should not father more than 25 children in 12 families. They are asked to, which I think is a good rule, by the way. You don't want half-siblings dating one another or procreating. There was an episode of Boston Legal where that was the case. They are asked to limit the number of times they offer their services to reduce the chance that siblings might unknowingly form a couple and have children together. But judges said the man had helped produce between 550 and 600 children 
since he began donating sperm in 2007. It's only 15 years ago. 600 children in 15 years? Jeez. He was taken to court by a foundation protecting donor children's rights and by the mother of one of the children uh, fathered from his sperm. And a spokesperson for the court said the point is that this kinship network with hundreds of half-brothers and half-sisters is much too large. Exactly. Over a hundred of the children fathered by the man were born in Dutch clinics and others privately. But he also donated, donated to a Danish clinic where they make Danishes, which dispatched his semen to addresses in various countries. The man is also not permitted to contact any prospective parents with the wish that he was willing to donate semen. He is not allowed to advertise his services to prospective parents or join any organization that establishes contact between prospective parents. The donor deliberately misinformed prospective parents about the number of children he'd already fathered in the past. That's what the court in The Hague said. The Netherlands has been hit by this kind of thing before. In 2019... A Dutch fertility doctor was accused of using his own sperm to inseminate patients without their consent, and he was confirmed as the father of 49 children. The doctor. Now, I think they made a documentary about that. I didn't see it, but I remember reading about that at the time. This blows that away. I mean, 500? That's crazy. Crazy. I don't know. We don't know this person's last name, so I can't get a hold of him. But if I could ever interview this guy, I would ask him, why would you do this? What would possess you to want to sire between five and 600 children? I don't get it. I don't get it. All right. Um, I also don't get most of the clues in Jeopardy! Masters edition. I don't know if you've heard about this. I, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but this week they started Jeopardy! Masters. This is so cool. The six... Six of the best Jeopardy players in recent years, pretty much everybody except Ken Jennings, six of the best Jeopardy players of all time are facing off in a tournament this week. It's called Jeopardy Masters, and it's in prime time. And I'm glad Tucker Carlson's not on the air, and I'm glad the Mets weren't on last night because I was actually able to watch this. It was so much fun. It's hosted by Ken Jennings, who's the winningest Jeopardy champion of all time. And uh, you got James Holtzauer, you got Matt Amodio, you got uh, the, the the Sam, that guy that looks like Steve Martin. You got that Asian guy, uh, uh, Sam Buttry is his name. You got the Asian guy, I believe his name is Andrew. And it's so great seeing these these Jeopardy titans face off against one another. Uh, uh, Matea Roach, who I like a lot, the young Canadian woman. And it was really great. And the reason I said it's tough to follow is because unlike, say, College Jeopardy or Tournament of Teens Week or Celebrity Jeopardy, these are not easy clues. I mean, if you, these guys, these are very tough clues, and these guys are getting them all. I mean, it's incredible. The only the thing that I'd love to see is whoever ends up winning this, I'd love to see how they do against um, Ken Jennings. I'd love to see a special Jeopardy about that, where you have Amy Schneider, Sam Buttrey, James Holtzauer, Matea Roach, Andrew He, that's his last name, and Matt Amodio 
I'd love to see the who the two best contestants here face off against uh, Ken Jennings. And they had a lot of fun because uh, they were joking around with one another. Holt Sauer, uh, Amy Schneider, and and the others. Here's a clip from last night's edition of Jeopardy Masters. Here's Ken's Je- Ken Jennings joking around with James Holt Sauer. And we also have James Holt Sauer <laughs> making his long-awaited return to the Alex Trebek stage after years. The last time we saw each other here, James, we were both over there. I don't think this happens. <laughs> you're, you're blocking it out. That's fine. And the other thing that was funny is there was one moment where Amy who's won more games than anybody else in this tournament, she says to Ken Jennings, who's now the host of the show, she says, hey, Ken, you know, uh, I'd love to uh, talk to you about how you felt when um, you won your 40th game because she's won 40 games. I think she might be the only other player other than Ken Jennings to win 40 games. And then she points to her opponents, and she's joking around, but it's a little bit of joking trash talk. She points to her opponents and says, I'd love to ask these guys, but I can't. And everybody laughs. And then Ken Jennings had a very clever retort. He said, and I'll tell you, I have to admit, I was a doubting Thomas when it came to Ken Jennings. I did not think he was going to do a good job as the host of Jeopardy. I think he's done phenomenally well. I think he is hitting it out of the park as the host of Jeopardy. He is relatable in a way for the super smart contestants. He's relatable in a way for the audience. He's in a, a relatable in a way for the contestants that are struggling. He doesn't hit you over the head with the fact that he's smarter than you are. I think he's doing a great job. I'm a big enough man to say when I was wrong. I did not think he would do well. He's done well. But um, what Ken Jennings says to Amy Schneider when she says, hey, I'd love to talk with you about what it was like. I'd like to compare notes on what it was like after your 40th victory. He says, uh, hey, well, it was not nearly as good as the 50th or the 60th victory, which Amy Schneider never experienced. So I thought that was uh, I thought that was very funny and very clever. The one, if I have one criticism about the Jeopardy Masters edition, it's this. Right. So it's an hour in prime time, an hour. Now, that's in addition to the half hour regular edition of Jeopardy. So we're talking all this week. There's going to be an hour and a half of Jeopardy on every day, every night. Now, I I love Jeopardy as much as the next guy. But really, who's got an hour and a half to watch television every night? I guess if you TiVo it or DVR it, whatever you do, you could fast forward through the commercials if you tape it and it goes a little quicker. But it really is um, a lot of Jeopardy. 90 minutes a night? A little too much. Years ago, when they would do these special Jeopardies, the Celebrity Jeopardy, there are anything else, they would just air them in the regular Jeopardy time slot for a half hour and you'd be done. And it was nice. It was a nice little treat. But I just worry if we're starting to see too much of a of a good thing here. So, I don't know. We'll see how it goes tomorrow. I can't see how I can watch 90 minutes of this every night. I mean... As much as I love Jeopardy, it's just a little too much. Tell me what you think, if you um, agree with my enjoyment of the show, but also my concern that it's just it's too much. 800-848-9222. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. Um, uh, you know I love Jeopardy. I've been watching it since I was a little kid. And um, I, I love these uh, tournament shows. It's, champion show and um 
I I thought it was quite enjoyable. I loved it. I was glad that I saw it. But, you know, um, there are certain people that they can't watch these things all the time. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't see how I can manage an hour and a half every night. I mean, and again, it's great once. If it was a one-off thing, okay, you can manage an extra hour of watching Jeopardy. But an hour every night in addition to the regular Jeopardy? I mean, that's a lot of Jeopardy, Carol. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. Who are you rooting but for? Do you have a favorite? Love... Oh, Andrew Lee. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, he, he always seems so quiet and, uh, you know... Uh, he he seems like a nice, quiet guy, but he always seems to get the answers right all the time. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you, Carol, and uh, thank you yeah, very much. I, like I, I appreciate the uh, the call there. You know what else is a growing trend? There, this blew my mind. On the one hand, but on the other hand, it really didn't. A recent study is projecting that the I'm not joking about this. Not joking. A recent study is projecting that the edible insect market is going to grow to a $6 billion worldwide market by 2027. $6 billion. I mean, that's more than the royal family gets from the taxpayers of the U.K. So every week, we it seems like we see a new story about venture capital investing in companies raising insects for human consumption. And the reasons they give for this are that they're increasing, there are increasing food shortages, so insects are a cost-effective way to feed the growing global population. Okay, I'll accept that if that's true. And secondly, they say insects are more environmentally friendly than our current animal protein question. So that brings up a couple of questions. What's this the the impact of this trend on the fresh produce industry, and will this catch on in North America? Because so far, we haven't seen we haven't seen edible insects be a big thing. I remember a year or two ago, I went to uh, Atlantic City, and I, I think Atlantic City it might have been Cape May, and I bought some edible crickets for Sid Rosenberg and Bernie McGurk, and I gave them to them. They were disgusted; they wouldn't eat them. And I didn't want to eat them. I figured they would eat them. And so I still have them if anybody wants them. I don't want to ship them to anybody, but if anybody here wants them, uh, they're welcome to them. But um, I don't know what it is about America. We've adopted so many other international trends, but for whatever reason, we're not ready to join the rest of the world when it comes to edible insects. So, all right, 800-848-9222. Six open lines. You want to comment on Jeopardy? You want to comment on why someone would ever want to sire five to six hundred children? You want to comment on the uh, edible insect craze? You're welcome to. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Don is in New Jersey. Hello, Don. Hello. Uh, I just wanted to say Alex Trebek showed us the way to die. He died with class, and he never really made a big thing out of it. And he was very brave, and uh, I just wanted to get that in about Alex. Well, Don, I certainly agree with you. Thank you. I spoke a lot about Alex Trebek when uh, when he passed away, 
and uh, talked with some people that had been on the show and shared some other observations about Alex Trebek. And I, I certainly agree with that. Played some good clips of him over the years. But um, I think it's a nice – I agree with everything you said. I think it's a nice tribute that they gave to him by naming the stage where Jeopardy takes place the Al- Alex Trebek stage. And I'll just add, everything you just said about Alex Trebek can be said of my colleague Bernard McGurk, the former morning man over at uh, WABC. A lot of people know him nationally from his work on the IMAS program over the years. He, Bernie continued doing his show. I mean, uh, for whenever he was well enough to. He would do this show sometimes when he was being was so sick that he couldn't even sit up. He would be doing it from bed, from home. And he didn't sit there and whine and complain. I mean, people think I whine too much about uh, the the goings on in my life. Can you imagine if I would if I had terminal cancer? You you could bet that would be two hours of the show every day. Not Bernie McGurk. So he did the same thing. He again, I wish he would have gotten earlier treatment for his uh, prostate cancer earlier. But um, he did the same thing. He really lived as he died, which was as a as a class act all the way. 800-848-9222. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi. Good morning, Frank. How are you tonight? I'm doing fine. Hello? Yes. Go ahead, Paul. Okay. What's on your mind? Oh, I was going to comment on the uh, edible insects. They, uh, my sister lived in South America. They, she said they used to have chocolate-covered ants for sale there that people would eat. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It was a big thing. And the only other time I've heard it was maybe in Vietnam. I think they eat bees. But I had a funny story of one friend. We were sitting at the park one day, and there was a fuzzy caterpillar on the table. He said he was going to eat it. But then all the spines got stuck in his throat. Oh, <laughs> my <purple>. goodness. <laughs> Turning purple. Oh, so people should be careful if they just decide to eat an insect. <laughs> you know, they don't know what it is. <laughs> Uh, that that is uh, that is fair, Paul. Thank you uh, very much. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I um I know some people that were not bothered by it. And look, maybe a couple of years from now, it's going to be as common these days as eating shrimp, right? I mean, as you think about it, is eating shrimp or uh, snails or I don't know what else, what else do people eat that's kind of gross? Um, prawns. Or mussels? Is that that different from eating an insect? I think snails actually might be an insect. What's the difference between eating mussels and eating a cricket or eating any of these other things? Maybe this will catch on here. What do you think? 800-848-9222. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. All right. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Dreams, Fleetwood Mac. This is um, another Birthday Eve bumper music selection by uh, Nick Prince Valley. Now, Matt Blaze, let me ask you this. So, for two days in a row, I've listed Janet's birthday bumper music selection, Melanie's version of Dust in the Wind from the Beautiful Hits album. And I listed it intentionally early in the list the last uh-huh. two days. But that didn't get picked, and yet Nick Principali, he's got all his picks in. I mean, what are you guys, well, cornhole compatriots somewhere? First of all, I have no idea whose pick is what. You just list songs. I know, but, no, but that's the first I'm afraid thing. you're going to exercise editorial judgment against people that you don't like. And we don't these nice ha- cigars Janet sent me. We don't have Janet's songs. I play the songs that we have. Every song that has been played tonight has been on the list. I see. Is that correct? Yes or no? Well, I, I mean, has it been Oh, on the list of songs that for, I've sent even, you? Yeah, even yes, for today. That's true. It's that's on true. today's list. Not even There are times that I have to go back because, you know, we only play a certain number of songs per night. So songs that I didn't play maybe two or three or four days ago, I'll go back and right. play those. We appreciate These that. are all on today's list. But yeah, but so I thought that by requesting Janet's song early, a day early, right. we might be able to get that in, but we didn't. And, you know, I am not in charge of getting the songs. I see. I only play them. Put on the list for uh, Friday's meeting. Put that Friday's on the list. Meeting. 800-848-9222. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Uh, hello. Um, I have a theory. I think why anger is rising with a lot of people, I think they're hungry. You know, when I want ice cream, <laughs> I want the I want the real deal. I want cream, real cream. I don't want skim milk in my ice cream. I want real milk, real cream, and sugar. Um, and, you know, I watch what I eat. I'm not, you know, I don't overeat or anything. But when I want a steak, I want a steak. And you know something? It, it has been found that endorphins are released when you eat something pleasurable. And I think the problem, I was in the grocery store looking at all this oat milk and all this nonsense pushing milk out of the picture. And I even said to the grocery guy, I said, you know, I think people are basically hungry. That's why they're angry all the time. And he actually said to me a couple months later, you know, I always remember what you said. And I said, well, what did I say? And he (laughs) said, well, I think I think the problem with this world is people are hungry. Well, Pamela, I do agree because I've seen so many anecdotal examples of people getting very belligerent and very difficult to deal with when they're hungry. And I'm sure that's true in my own case. But the one thing that I don't know that, that that jives with your theory, which I think is an interesting one, and I'd love to see an article on this, kind of mirroring societal discontent with denying people the foods that they want to eat. The one thing is, how do you then explain the tremendous obesity that the country is dealing with? I mean, we've never been fatter or angrier. Yeah, well, that's that's different. That's just poor eating habits. You know, I exercise and I, you know, like I'll go on an ice cream binge and then I'll stop for a while. Uh, But I don't drink diet soda. I don't, you know, that kind of stuff can actually cause diabetes. They're finding that it uh, it messes up your metabolism. Your your pancreas doesn't know whether it's, uh, you know, a fake sugar or real sugar. And then, you know. So I eat within reason, but when I want the real deal, I eat the real deal. There you go. Uh, I got, you know, a pizza, you know, uh, I hadn't ordered a pizza out for a while. The pandemic, I just got out of the habit and everything and the price of them now. 
But I just like, I saw a picture of a pizza the other day, and I just had to have one. And I enjoyed that pizza, I tell you. And, <laughs> Good for and you. I, I tell you, if people would just like, you know, this nonsense, it started with the, oh, don't eat steak, don't eat eggs. And that was a bunch of baloney. You know, eggs are very good for you. They're a whole food. They have a, the yolk has very good things in it. And you know what? My mother-in-law is now going to be 98. And um, she eats, you know, minimally, like we talked about the other night right. about uh, people who live long um, don't overeat. But when she wants, you know, an egg, she eats an egg. When she wants a this, she eats a this. You know, it. We're we're just too hung up on all this this nonsense, and you know you do all this, and then it's like the story. You know the health guy gets hit by a car. Yeah, yeah, I, I get. You know, thank you, Pamela, and uh, I get what she's saying. You know what it is? It's um, there's a story. There's an old proverb. Uh, I don't remember who was the progenitor of this proverb, and I don't know that anyone does. But uh, Mario Cuomo used to tell this story once in a while. But the there was a, an, a sparrow who is lying on the ground with his, I don't know, what, what, what claws up, right? He's lying on the ground with his claws up. He's perfectly fine. And an Arab traveler sees this bird lying on his back on the ground. And the Arab traveler says to the sparrow, what are you doing? And the sparrow says to the Arab, well, uh, I'm told that the sky is falling today. And then he says, but what are you doing? And the sparrow says, and I could be butchering this. I don't think I am. But the sparrow says, well, I'm going to try and do what I can to keep the sky from falling. And the Arab says, you're not going to be able to stop the sky from falling. You're just one small little bird. And the sparrow tells the Arab, we all do what we can. And I think I find so much solace in that story. Because I think about it all the time, since the first time I heard it, decades ago, because there's so much, um, if you think, look, I have to change the world, if you think I have to run a marathon, if you think I have to become the picture of health, if you think that I'm going to um, really be the be-all and end-all in anything, a billionaire or a marathon runner or whatever the case may be, and that's great things to aspire to, a lot of times, not everybody can do that stuff. And a lot of times you set yourself up for disappointment. But if you look at it as the sparrow does, that he's just doing what he can. He's just doing what he can to hold up the sky and try to keep it from falling. And if a lot, enough people also do what they can, maybe cumulative, cumulatively, they'll be able to keep the sky from falling. And uh, I take a lot of solace in that. So you don't have to give up everything. And sure, you could be have a strict vegan diet like King Charles. King Charles, vegan, by the way. And you can still get hit by a bus, sure. But look, we all do what we can, right? And Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Yeah, Frank, you know, you're a pretty smart guy. But there were times that you just excel uh, in, in, in your ideas. Now, the insect thing... I think you're wrong about the crickets. Crickets are pretty hard to catch, but New York City's full of cockroaches. So I can't see why we can't have a nice cockroach uh, meal. And not only not only have the cockroach, but we collate it with the Democratic candy fentanyl. So not only will we eat the cockroaches, but we'll be smiling when we eat them. 
So it's not a bad idea to, to start experimenting with our insects, Frank. Uh, thank you, Neil. I appreciate that very much. So yesterday when Jeffrey Gurian was here, and I was happy to have Jeffrey Gurian here, and I got great feedback on that uh, on that interview. I didn't get to go through all the email feedback I got on Jeffrey Gurian and a lot of, a lot of yesterday's show. But the uh, I sent him in an Uber here, and I sent him in an Uber home, my own expense. I mean, he doesn't live far, but um, I feel like it's the least that I can do. If he's going to come in the middle of the night, least I could do is pay for an Uber to send him home. And I was looking yesterday at my Uber rating, and it looks like my Uber rating is a 4.77. See, the Uber drivers can rank you just as you can rank them. And I'm always exceedingly polite to these Uber drivers. And I looked at my wife's Uber rating. She's got a 4.98, maybe even a 4.99. And I can't understand why I have a 4.77, which is too low. And then I remembered, I think there was an incident many years ago when Uber first started where I think I got uh, I got uh, sick due to drinking in an Uber and uh, vomited in the back of an Uber. But here's my beef with this. I paid for the cleaning fee for that Uber. So why should it be reflected in my rating seven, eight years later? I don't think it should. And I think the other thing is I was giving my brother a ride home in an Uber when he was similarly drunk and he vomited in the, the Uber. So I think I have these two vomiting incidents on my record. But I feel like Eventually, they should come off. I don't know. I want to talk to the folks at Uber and and see if they can do something to, after a, a statute of limitations, remove those negative reviews. So. All right. Next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A couple things just happened. One, you know what I normally do at the top of the hour uh, because it's the only time I get, you know, a two-minute break. I'll usually stand up, get a cup of tea, I'll walk around, I'll use the restroom. I think it's important for, you know, for your health and for just your energy levels and being able to stay awake and sound bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to walk around at the top of the hour so you're not just sitting here and have all the blood flow to your duff. And uh, one thing, I did not do that just now because 
I don't know how I stumbled upon this. I, I think what happened was I was on the YouTube earlier, and I was looking for that Trump clip that I referenced in the mail portion of the show. And in finding that, you know, I don't know, the YouTube algorithm is such a peculiar one. I don't know how it chooses to show me certain things. But I'm a fan of the TV series The Sopranos, and I guess YouTube knows this. And for whatever reason, this video, which is totally silly but incredibly brilliant, pops up on my screen. And it's The Sopranos as if it was done, uh, the, the recreating the opening to Full House. You remember the show Full House? I think it's still on as Fuller House now with Bob Saget and John Stamos and the Olsen twins. Very wholesome family sitcom. It's it's ridiculous show. It's almost totally unwatchable. I mean, it had its moments, but the it's they have a very cool open, very clever theme song. They Whoever edited this video edited that same theme song, but with the Sopranos. It's terrific. It's hysterical. And I just posted it on my Facebook page if you want to read it. Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That is Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. Right, this is the theme song, right? But it really loses a lot not seeing the visuals that they use. So you got to see the visuals because nobody sees how funny this is with a totally different set of visual images. They even have the graphics like the, the like Full House from The Sopranos. It's really well done. So you can check it out, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. I just posted that. All right, 800-848-9222. Interesting article yesterday in Axios. Headline, Extinction of the Moderates. And it writes, and I don't know that I agree with all of the assumptions made in this article, but I do agree with the broad overarching theme. The article writes, it's been a tough start to 2023 for moderates hoping for a return to normalcy in our politics. And it goes on to say that for all the talks of a no-labels third-party effort, the reality is that politicians, and by extension many of their constituents, are still in a no-compromise mood. Donald Trump, this is Axios speaking, not me, Donald Trump is barreling his way to the Republican nomination, gaining more momentum by the day. Biden, who has made some moves to the center, hasn't won over many swing voters for his efforts. Moderating forces in the Senate, like Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, are facing long odds returning after 2024, despite their bipartisan appeal. A partisan gerrymander is now likely in North Carolina, after a new state Supreme Court ruling, jeopardizing the prospects of some of the most moderate Democratic lawmakers in the House. And I would add, and this is my own insertion, not Axios's, the same thing is going to happen in New York. They're trying to gerrymander the congressional Republicans out of existence in New York with the help of the new, newly appointed members of the State Court of Appeals, which is our equivalent of uh, the Supreme Court. So you could see a lot of the moderate Republicans in New York end up the same way that these moderate Democrats in North Carolina end up. They continue, if Trump is at the top of the ticket, the 18 House Republicans in districts 
Biden carried will face existential danger. One House GOP strategist strategist told Axios another Trump nomination would shrink the battleground map and limit the party's appeal in the suburbs. Swing voters make up the difference in competitive elections, but the bases of both parties are still gravitating to the extremes. Meanwhile, the moderates who have defied their party's basis to seek compromise aren't getting rewarded politically for their efforts. I do agree with that. Cinema and Mansion, who have been at the center of congressional deal-making during the Biden presidency, are underdogs. Neither is even committed to running for re-election. There's a new poll, and it found that in, out of West Virginia that Manchin is trailing Governor Jim Justice by 14 points. And despite being an incumbent in a state with a large number of independents, Cinema has been polling in third place. Last week, the North Carolina Supreme Court paved the way for this GOP supermajority in the state legislature to ram through a partisan map to lock in a GOP advantage. And that delegation now is evenly split with seven Democrats and seven Republicans. North Carolina is home to some of the most moderate Democrats in Congress who are now at risk of losing their seats. Meanwhile, the 18 House Republican majority makers, the representatives who won districts Biden carried in 2020, they're looking very vulnerable with the likelihood of Trump as the nominee. So they write that it's very possible we won't be seeing many bipartisan dealmakers left in Washington after 2024. So I think it's an interesting premise, and I have noticed that moderates, I don't want to say they're going extinct, which is how the Axios article makes it sound. It is tougher to be a moderate in Congress now than it was 20 years ago. I will absolutely say that because here's why. If you're a moderate, Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. If you're a moderate, you know in all likelihood you're facing a primary from either the right wing or the left wing, depending on if you're a Democrat or Republican. And you have to spend a lot of money fending off a primary challenge and a lot of resources and in all likelihood take positions that are a little bit more to the right or the left than you ordinarily would. And your reward for winning a primary as a moderate is because you're a moderate, chances are your district is a purple one and it's one of only a handful of districts that either party can win. That means they're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at you in the general election. And your reward for being a moderate and being willing to work with people on the other side is you're going to be the first ones targeted. I mean, if you look at the districts that are super right-wing or super left-wing, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for instance, nobody is targeting her in the general election at all. Well, she's not a moderate. That's a poor example. But the, you, the point is the same. That's a left-wing district. Josh Gottheimer, that district will always be targeted by the Republicans. Same thing with the the moderate Republicans that are uh, in purple districts. They're always going to have a general election. And if they're moderate, they're always going to have a primary. I don't necessarily share the same pessimism of Axios for a few reasons. One, Rich Lowry wrote about this in his column recently. Trump is certainly not moderate temperamentally. He says a lot of things that are extreme, and a lot of his rhetoric can be kind of extreme. But Trump is not an extremist. If you just look at his policies, he is a Republican that blames the Supreme Court's abortion decision on Roe versus Wade 
for costing them the election last year. He's a Republican that is running ads against Ron DeSantis trying to cut Social Security. I mean, how many other Republicans are running opposing any other entitlement reform or any other entitlement cuts? He's a Republican whose whole political career was largely defined by opposing the wars of George W. Bush and the Republicans. He's a Republican that's incredibly critical of the FBI, the Department of Justice, and law enforcement overreach. That doesn't sound like an extremist ideologically. Now, the things he says are extreme, but he's taking issue with Ron DeSantis over his war with Disney. So I don't, I've never bought the notion that Trump is an extremist. I think legislatively, policy-wise, he might be the most moderate Republican in the bunch. But obviously the things that he does are not moderate in temperament. Um, so, and I'm interested to see what go where this no-labels thing goes. I think the result of the no-labels situation really depends on who the candidate is. Bill Galston had an article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, which I read, but that didn't stop Curtis Lee from cutting it out for me and leaving it for Alex to give me. But Bill Galston's column in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend basically says that the polling suggests that if there is a no-labels candidate on the ballot, that inures to Trump's benefit. I think it's too early to tell. I think it really depends on who the candidates are. But I'm, I am concerned about the fact that it's so difficult to be a moderate in politics and in the media, by the way. Try being a moderate on, um, on Fox News or MSNBC. See how far that goes. Or a guy that legitimately calls balls and strikes. And that's one of the reasons I have so much respect for Smirconish. But um, the only other thing that I would add to that is so often moderates and what they call moderate policies means both parties agreeing to do things that the voters don't want done. Ralph Nader had a wonderful book about uh, 11 years ago called Unstoppable. The coming left-right alliance to, uh, I forget the word he used, to break down the corporate state. And he goes through issue after issue where left-wingers and right-wingers agree. And they don't agree because they're compromising. They agree because legitimately that's their position. Civil liberties, uh, endless foreign wars, uh, term limits, issue after issue that the left wing and the right wing agree upon, the rank and file, but the status quo, the forces of status quo, which would produce what I guess some people would call moderate policies, they're opposed to what the voters actually want. So I don't know, I I get why Axios wrote this article, because it's an easy story to understand, and it includes a couple of interesting um, tidbits, but I don't think being red or blue is as black and white as they make it out to be. I know that sounds a little weird. I'm mixing color metaphors, but I hope I'm being clear. Right? Uh, speaking of Kirsten Cinema, I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. She was on Face the Nation on Sunday, and she was talking about uh, – ending partisanship in this country. And she referenced another person that was known as a maverick, Senator John McCain. You know, and I think about the speech that John gave on his very last floor opportunity in the United States Senate. Um, This is in 2018. 
And the last floor speech that Senator McCain gave, he talked about the concern he had with the partisanship at every cost mentality that had taken over Congress and much of our political system. And I remember, I remember in that speech he said that folks were more interested in ensuring that the other party lost or prevented the other party from getting a win and that they were no longer focused on the much more inspiring and more meaningful work of bringing people together, people of good faith, to actually solve problems and improve lives of the people that we serve in our country. Now, not a lot of people talk about that last speech that John gave, but John gave that speech as his last floor speech on purpose. And it's because in his decades of service, as you mentioned, he was a man of strong opinions, mm -hmm. often voted with his party, but was unafraid to stand alone and break with his party when he thought he was doing something right. But he always did it with dignity and honor and respect of others. And in that last speech in 2018, he spoke about the importance of getting rid of the uninspiring activities you see now of partisanship and restoring the inspiring activity of working together. So how do we fix this in our country? I think that it's not really that difficult. It's all of us choosing to behave with that same level of dignity, of respect for each other, of honor, refusing to do that uninspiring activity of just trying to prevent the other from a win and instead focusing on what can we do to bring our country together and demonstrate that we're serving them. I agree with everything she said there. Uh, I agree with the dignity aspect of it. I agree with the partisanship aspect of it. I agree with the wanting to get stuff done aspect of it. However, the one thing that she that I'm struck by is the one thing about Kirsten Cinema that I'm not crazy about is the one thing that I absolutely could not stand about John McCain is that, you know, Kirsten Cinema is all in for this war in Ukraine and America's involvement in the war in Ukraine. John McCain was much worse. There was not a country on the globe that John McCain didn't at one point want to bomb or invade. And so often that's considered compromise. Democrats and Republicans working together to go to war in Iraq, to going to war in Syria. Whereas I think there's a lot to be said, not just for moderates compromising on the side of greater military intervention, but sometimes there's a lot to be said for Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders or Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders both opposing opposition to military intervention. And I think those sort of bipartisan alliances are just as meaningful and just as important. But I really enjoyed what Kirsten Cinema said there. And I'm really hoping she gets reelected. I'm rooting for her. And uh, I'm not exactly flush with cash right now, but I may make a campaign contribution to her as well. Because I think, even though we disagree on the Ukraine situation, I think that level of maturity that you just heard, that is so lacking among so many people in Washington today. So you be the judge. Are moderates going extinct? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Mark in Rochelle Park has been holding. Hello there, Mark. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, full, full transparency. I'm an Uber driver. Oh, I have a 4.99 rating. Uh, I just want to get something straight. You had not only one puke, but two puke incidents well, with Uber? So I know I had one. Uh, that was about, I believe, about seven years ago. 
right? Um, but and then I, I am eighty percent sure. I know my brother vomited in an Uber. Uber, yes, because I had to pay for that one too. Yes, my brother on my Uber account also vomited in in the car. He opened the door to vomit. Did not make it all the way out the door, and I had to pay for that one as well. Yes. All right. It works like this. I mean, first of all, you're lucky you have a 4.77. Uh, you should be banned from taking Uber if you have two puking incidents. And now just by paying for it doesn't absolve you uh, from the incident. It, you know, you say, well, what's the big deal? I paid for it. Well, I got a I have to have you puke in my car still, regardless of it being clean, knowing it's been done. And then it's the time it takes. I'm off the road. So if you mm. happen to you twice, I would have banned you. But here, here's what I would do if I were you. To get your rating higher, I would get another account. Get, uh. a, get a dummy email, set up account, put a middle initial in, and start all over again. Because if I get a 4.77, I'm in no hurry to pick you up. Really? So even yeah. 4.77 is not that bad, it's terrible. though. It's terrible. Terrible? Right? It's terrible. Anything below a 4.9. Listen, if you can't behave in, in someone's vehicle and not, and not get sick or puke, I don't want you in there. Well, I, how about you, this? Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Mark. I'm sure my brother Alex has an Uber account on his own. Is there any way that I can speak to the powers that be at Uber and tell them this incident from oh. August 9th, 2019, that that was actually his vomiting incident and that should be transferred to his record? You could try, but let me tell you, there are no powers to be with Uber. It's like the mighty Wizard of Oz, a man behind the curtain. <laughs> they don't exist. They don't exist. Now, I'm telling you, what's going to happen this weekend? Avery is going to have a field day with that story. Just well, to I, let you uh, know ahead of time. God bless him. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad somebody gets something out of it. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the insight. Good luck. If I ever see you, I'm giving you a five. And you know what? I always get along so well with these Uber drivers. I had this uh, you know, I had two incidents recently um, when I was in Atlanta, and uh, I was down there for JFK's bachelor party. And this very nice woman picks us up, and she's picking up four or five of us. And she basically, I'm making conversation with her, and none of the other guys really are. We leave the car, and I said, oh, man, that wasn't on my Uber account. So I waste, not I wasted, but I invested all that time and energy into being a great conversationalist. And now I don't even get credit for that. Additionally, on on Friday, I took an Uber somewhere because I went to my buddy's. And the driver picks me up. The driver's as nice as can be, this guy, Jeremiah. And he's going on and on. Uh, He's telling me how he works for Delta. And this is a 10-minute car ride less. He works for Delta part-time or full-time. Then he does the Uber, does a lot of other things. He's talking to me about Cinco de Mayo and how everybody's in a party mode tonight. Okay, all good. And then he just makes a ridiculous comment. And I, I mentioned that I have a son. And he says, oh, you know, I really, I take fatherhood very seriously. This is what he says to me. And I said, oh, you do? Oh, how, many, how many children do you have? He says, oh, I don't have any children. But I take fatherhood very seriously. Now, you don't want to know the amount of self-restraint I had to exercise by not saying to him, What? How do you take fatherhood very seriously? What does that mean, you take fatherhood very seriously? 
I don't even know what that means. But you know what I said? I said, oh, great, good. Because I did not want him to knock me lower than a 4.77. So I got to talk to the folks at Uber now. Because if I'm still paying off this vomit incident from August of 2019 because Alex vomited in this car, that is, that's not fair. It's not fair to me and it's not fair to Flair. So that's that. Metplace, what's your Uber rating? Um, my, I don't take Uber that much. Well, well but okay, it's, but I think we'll it's see, like a four point nine. Well, pull it up, pull it up. What is it? Oh, I'd have to, I'd have to pull it up. But it's, it's like a four point nine. But I will say this, since we're talking about it, that I did drive Uber, um, and a four seven is as a passenger four seven seven. If four seven seven, it's a lot of drivers would not pick yeah, you up. Right, that, well, that is a hundred percent true. Um, I wasn't like that. I, I was more like, if it was like a four, like a below a four, like five maybe or something. I, I was a little more. I was a little better. But there are drivers that I know that would not pick you up. And yes, throwing up in the car is the worst possible thing you could do to a driver, and will automatically get you a one star. And Mark is right. There are no powers that be at Uber. You, there's no one to talk to, and they will not change your rating. That I could tell you, they will not change your rating. But look, I'm looking at all these trips, and I, I when it says five stars, because I almost always give the drivers five stars. Right. I'm looking at all these trips, and I don't know when it says five stars if that's the driver rating me or rating or me rating them. But I'm thinking I have a lot of five star rides here. Why? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I, that I don't really know because I, I don't use. I can pull mine up. I, I haven't taken it in so long. Let's see. Uh... Where does it say? Oh. Well, un- under under, under rides. Account? Oh, yeah. I, I 5.0. Oh, please. <laughs> but, I've, but I've literally had, I think I've taken Uber maybe three times. So if I got five stars each time. Well, that's the other thing. I feel like, you know, it's easy to be batting 1,000 if you've played in one baseball game, right? Right. Well, that's you, what it is. Play, play as long <laughs> as Pete Rose played and see what your batting average is. You right. know, that's, uh, that's the other thing. Kenneth, what's yours? So is it um? Do you go under account and then yeah, it's under yeah. your name? Yeah, I mean, like right uh, here, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I have a five. You have a five. Yeah. Oh boy, you're reg- two regular Ted Lassos over here. <laughs> uh, oh, Obi Murray just texted me. He says I have a four seven, and he uh, he says I have a four seven and never got sick. Well, I mean, uh, so what about that? How do you explain that? There's a there are a million different reasons that. A driver could rate you badly. It can be they don't like you. It could be that you roll down the window without asking. It could be. Well, that's what I do. I sit there and I am angelic when I'm a passenger. Right. I'm not touching anything. Yeah. So Safety they're, they're, belts on. I always thank them for picking me up. Right. And if you do that, then you'll get a, a good rating. If you, But you're right. If you say anything that the driver may or may not like. That can cause a bad rating. I when I rated people, you had to do something really horrible to me for me to give you a bad rating, and I never did. I know I always gave people fives, maybe a four, but for me to go less than that, you had to do something bad, and that only happened maybe once or twice. Yeah, I was just gonna say, even if you said something like that, the driver may have disagreed with or whatever. I don't think they'd really go out of their way to give you a poor rating. Well, it like all depends said, on the driver. Would. You, would they really? Yeah, because you see how ornery. I feel this like you guy have is? to do something really extreme, like you just said, no. for them to give you a crappy rating. No, because because as a driver, 
you got to realize how many rides you're giving in, in a night if you're doing it a lot and how many different people are in and out of your car. And you could just be annoyed. Something that didn't annoy you when you first started can annoy you so much after you've been doing it for six to eight months because it's happened so many times that right. you're going to give that person a horrible rating. Well, is there anything that can be done now in terms no. of no? No. I can tell you, no. And not that I ever tried, but I heard stories of people, even as a driver, trying to get in touch with Uber, trying to talk to somebody, all that kind of stuff is like, it's like, like he said, it's like the Wizard of Oz. It's like it's hard to even talk to an actual person. Well, I don't like this at all. Let me see what my Lyft rating is. is Ly- does Lyft have that also? Um, what if I befriend an Uber driver and I, I have that Uber driver keep just giving me, I hail them, and they keep, well, I guess I got to pay them. Um, I think there there is a way now, um, I believe there's a way that you can keep, that you can get a certain driver as long as they're driving and in your area that you can request a ride or something. I think, I don't know. Yeah, this is not a not a great situation. Not a great situation. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello there, Robert. Hi, Frank. I have a friend who's an Uber driver. There's nothing you can do. You will not get in touch with anybody. They deliberately, purposely make it that way, both for passengers and drivers. Well, now, let me point this out. I looked on Lyft. I'm a 4.9 on Lyft. Well, then you should keep using Lyft. But, but you know what, though? And, and we'll get to your point in a second, Robert. You know, if you go to casinos, right, and if you have the top player card at a casino, a lot of times what you could do is you could go to another casino and they will tier match you. They'll give you a black card or whatever the color card they use if you have a platinum card over there. And I used to do this in Vegas and Atlantic City. I'd have the high player card in one casino and then you use it to get everywhere else. I should be able to use this 4.9 rating to tier match over, over with the Uber folks. No, it's no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> All right. What's on your mind, Robert? <laughs> um, did, why didn't you eat or try the crickets? What, what, what do you think? I'm going to be eating crickets here? That's disgusting. I'll leave that to Sid Rosenberg. <laughs> okay. Good question, though. After, after the Bolshevik Revolution, they made the uh, communes with the farming system. They starved tens of millions of their own people. They couldn't even eat the grain and the animals that they produced. And these globalists like Bill Gates, who are buying, he has the most farmland of one individual person that he has bought up in the United States just for the idea of this climate change nonsense to raise bugs and have people eat them instead of animals. All right, think Robert. Thank you. I will. I will. You've given me a great deal to think about there. Uh, that is for sure. All right. Um, well, you know, I, I'm on the fence. I hate to keep going back to this, but I'm on the fence about whether I should enjoy my 4.9 rating with Lyft and just use Lyft from now on or, or – Follow me here. Do I keep using Uber in the hopes that I will be able to improve my Uber rating? That's that's the question, really. 
Now, when you talk to the drivers, yeah, do, I, I, do you tell them, like, oh, I'm going to tip you in the app, or do you do any of that kind no, of I, stuff? I mean, no. How do you tell? I mean, I just tip them after I drop them off. After they drop I mean, you after off. After they drop me off. I mean, yeah. in, in the app, or do you tip them actual cash? How do you? I usually I tip them in the app. But do you tell them? Because mm-hmm. a, a lot of times, I could tell, now, I, I could tell you that a lot of drivers, when you go, tip you in the app. And then they never get tipped in the app. No, well, I will and tip them in the app. So if you say that to them, they might give you, like, a two-star. Just because you said that. Wait, wait. But, uh, but I don't say anything. I just right. tip them. But I'm just saying, that, I mean, that's why I'm asking you, if, do you say anything? Like you said, do you roll down the window? First of all, I think... Do you, do you leave no, dirt? No. Do you leave I, anything I, look, in the car? I don't, I don't think I do anything... Except throw up in the backseat of the n- car. Once. Once, and my brother did once. Now, when you're doing these Uber, so you rides, know what I should do is I should make my brother Uber us somewhere and then throw up in his Uber. There you go. <laughs> now, are there other people in the car with you? Once in a while. Are you loud? Are you no, obnoxious? No, I'm telling or... you, my Uber, Uber behavior is exemplary. So, other than the... I, I, there are times when uh, if the driver looks tired, I offer to drive. So, other than the two times where you had throw up incidences what else, what other rating did you get that was poor well I, that's what i'm saying is i, I don't, don't think you could see that i don't you're, think you, you can either you're only seeing what you rate the drivers right. you I can't w- see what they rate uh, you that's the problem here. no no no, no. You, you, but the way you can tell how they rate you is after you've taken the ride if you then go look at your rating well, that's what i've been doing you could yeah. see it go up or down now if you got a bunch of five stars and then you get like a one star that's going to knock you down right. But for you to get a 4.77, you had more than one below five-star ride. Well, I think the two. I had the one with my brother Alex. But how many Uber rides have you taken? Uh, Many. Well, so That's uh, what I'm saying. For you to go and have a whole bunch of five-stars, and then even if you had, let's say you had, uh, how many rides do you think? You took 50, 100? In my life? Well, look, I've taken, it says I've taken 75 Lyft rides. So I, I use Uber more than Lyft, so I think it's got to be at least 100. So you had to have more than one or two one-stars to be at a 477. Because if you had five stars across and then two one-stars, then you might be like a 49 or a 492. You would not be a 4.77 if you had... 98 five-star rides and two one-stars. See, it's only letting me look at my trips since, let's see. Um, Okay, actually, I can go back a few years here. It lets me go back to, I don't know. It doesn't say like it does with um, Lyft how many trips I've taken. Now, was was there a time when you looked at your rating and you were like, oh, I'm a 485? Did it? I, no, did I didn't. It, or I you didn't, just didn't pay attention? I didn't pay attention to it. Right. I, didn't, I didn't pay attention to it. All right. Well, if you're an Uber driver out there, I would appreciate it if uh, you can give me a five-star rating. All right. We're going to do the $1,000 minute in just a second, but let me say hello to original Rick in New Jersey first. Hello, Rick. Good morning, Frank. Yeah, I, I don't know if Matt, he must know what he's talking about, but... Don't I've don't be a, so sure. Don't be so sure. A lot of people yeah, make I'm that not, assumption. I'm, I'm wondering because... Frank, I've, I've been a perfect Uber driver. I get in the car, I sit there, I say, hello, blah, blah. Passenger. And then I, I, Passenger. Yeah, that's right. yeah, I'm sorry, yes. And uh, I got a 4.71, and I've done nothing wrong ever. I didn't throw up. I didn't – nothing. I've been perfect. How can I get a poor four? That doesn't make any sense. Well, see, I think you and Obi Murray have the same situation, honestly, because he's in the same grade you are. Thank you. You guys talk too much. 
you guys talk too much. You, the driver just wants to be left that, alone, and the two of you are talking like crazy. I guarantee you that's what happened. That could be it. I'm you, telling you, drivers will rate people one star if they had a bad day, they're in a bad mood. You, you never know just to do it. They could say, oh, I don't like the way the, way the guy said this, the way I, one star. For any reason. Can I claim political retribution and become a, uh, a a folk hero because I'm being persecuted for my political beliefs at all now? Um, all right. $1,000 minute. 800-848-9222. If you are the seventh caller to that number, 800-848-9222, then we're going to give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you could do that. You can be $1,000 richer. Simple as that. Seventh caller to 800-848-9222. You got a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Thank you. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. All right. It's the moment so many of you wait for and tune in for where it gets really exciting, where we give people an opportunity to win some money. It is time for The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Thank you. I'll tell you a story about him later. Uh, let's say hello to Jeff on Long Island. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Frank. Jeff, uh, have you heard this segment before? Yes, I played in the very beginning. I was the first guy to miss on the first question. Oh, what was the question? It was the dreaded how many letters in the alphabet. Oh, that's a tricky one. That is a tricky one. I can see how you got thrown on that. I can understand. All right. Well, um, hopefully now you know. So if that question comes up, you'll you'll be well positioned for it. All right. All right. You ready, ready to go, Jeff? Let's do it. Okay. Name a planet in our solar system other than Earth. Mercury. Name an ingredient in egg salad. Eggs. What Academy Award-winning actor played Jack in the film Titanic? 
Leo DiCaprio. What former Secretary of State turns 100 years old this month? Oh, you know, what's his name? <laughs> yeah, everybody knows his name. Come on, it's with the accent. Yes. Um, how about a little hint? Uh, K. Last name starts with K. I'm sorry. I'm drawing a blank, Frank. I'm sorry, Jeff. I talked about him yesterday right around this time. Uh, Kissinger, Dr. Henry Kissinger. All right. right. Thank you, Frank. Sorry, Jeff. Hang on, and uh, we'll give give you a little something as a a consolation prize. Uh, Give Kenneth your information. Hey, all this talk of uh, transportation, did you see what happened with Frontier Airlines? Have you heard about this? Um. I don't know if you've ever experienced a situation like this, but you had these travelers on a Frontier Airlines flight to Atlanta. They apparently took an unruly passenger incident into their own hands yesterday, voting to remove a guest who had a confrontation with fellow flyers. This came out as a result of um, TikTok. And you have this situation where travelers on this Frontier Airlines flight, the, the series of TikTok videos, it shows two women on a flight from Trenton Mercer Airport in New Jersey to Atlanta shouting at one another before one of the women and a man next to her are escorted off the plane by what looks like ground crew members. Another traveler, again, this is not something that works for the airlines, a traveler. Another traveler then calls for the other passengers to weigh in on whether the second woman, who appeared to argue with the pair, should be removed. I think we have a little bit of the audio from one of these TikTok videos. Listen to this. So it can be a little difficult to make out there, but you have an, this other passenger calling for the passengers to vote on whether the second woman who appears to argue with the pair should be removed. He says in the clip, if you can hear me, raise your hand if you want her removed from the flight. Hands nearby shoot up before she was escorted off as well. Frontier and Trenton Mercer Airport did not immediately respond to the request for comment for USA Today. In a subsequent video, another TikTok user explained that the man and woman were a couple and he had been thrown off the flight after they argued with a flight attendant over a seat. The videos have racked up more than 16 million views. And this comes after multiple others involving uh, disruptive flyers, including a United Airlines flight to Tel Aviv. 
that turned around hours into its journey because of a disruptive passenger. And the rate of unruly passenger incidents has increased, excuse me, decreased more than 80 percent over the last two years. The worst year for this was 2021, according to the uh, FAA. The the agency received that year 2,455 reports of unruly passengers. But I've never even heard of anything like this. Usually when someone is misbehaving on an airplane, the pilot and the airline staff get to make the decision about whether to remove that person. I've never heard of an instance in my life of the passengers basically getting to vote like it's a democracy over who gets voted off the island, like it's like it's Survivor or something. So I thought that was interesting and worth uh, worth looking at. There you have it. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a little while. That's uh, 800-848-9222 if you would like to be heard. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Instagram Maniacs, uh, a.k.a. Steve Gallo. By the way, I did get an email from Steve Gallo, uh, Steve G., who you hear here, yesterday or the day before. And he wanted to let me know that this song is no longer available on iTunes. So it's been taken down off of iTunes. And I really did feel a bit annoyed because I wish he would have said to me, Hey, you know what? Tomorrow we're taking this song down off of iTunes. And this way people would have had one last opportunity to download it. And now they don't. It's basically, all right, well, you're out of luck. If you didn't do it, you're out of luck. I don't understand why we didn't at least get one last opportunity to purchase it on iTunes. But I'll tell you what, if you like this song and want to purchase it, If you email me, I'll connect you with Steve G, and maybe you can work out some sort of a side deal with him, and he'll sell you the download to the song. My email is frank.morano at um, redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Speaking of Steve G and the Instagram Maniacs, you can follow me on Instagram at moranovision. Almost all of my photographs are, uh, all my posts are Carmine-related, and uh, except yesterday. Although, no, Carmine's in this picture, too. I posted a notice about my wife's Instagram being hacked, 
And I put a photo of her and Carmine up because I figured it would get people's attention. Very handsome young man he is. And one person who I assume is a listener, Paul, says, Many thanks, Frank. Her direct message of two days ago was a bit unusual, but I sent a polite response. I will no longer reply to her, and I'm grateful for the heads up. Now, the thing that I understand is I don't think my wife knows this, Paul. So why would she be direct messaging him in the first place? So, I mean, that should have been a red flag. And it's funny. She was on the phone with her sister-in-law or FaceTime, whatever you call it, on Saturday or Sunday. And she's complaining about how everyone in the world has fallen for this Instagram hack. And it doesn't sound like her when she's messaging people, but people are still being taken in by it. And then my, follow me here, my sister-in-law's brother-in-law comes in and he comes in and my and he says to my wife hey good luck with that new clothing business you're starting and now my wife thinks he's joking around meaning he's in on the joke knows that she's been hacked and is messaging everybody and uh he says yeah i wasn't sure it was you at first but not and my wife says yeah i'm thank you i appreciate it hopefully you'll buy some of my clothing and he says yeah i wasn't sure if it was really you at first but now i will and she says, wait a minute, you're serious? He says, yeah. So I, I hope that everybody realizes. Well, one, I don't understand why it's taking Meta, a multi-billion dollar corporation, five days to get whoever's got control of her account at Rachel C. O'Brien. I don't understand why they can't fix this. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg and all these brilliant engineers that uh, Meta has. They can't figure out how to get this account back? Just revert it back to where it was four days ago? And uh, I, I just, there you have it. I don't know. So that's uh, that's that. But uh, I'll tell you, Carmine is uh, developing quite a reputation on social media. We went to Dan Fratellone's 70th birthday party on Sunday. And you, you know how it is when you have a, a child that's a year and a half old. He likes to run around. So usually what we do is one of two things. Either I'll sit and enjoy the meal while my wife runs around after our son, or I'll uh, run after him while she sits down and enjoys the company of our table mates. So she's running around with him on Sunday at this restaurant, great restaurant. And who happens to be at the restaurant? Scott Lebedo, the famous artist who's been a guest on this show. And I don't think he's seen my wife maybe since our wedding or shortly thereafter, but I, I see Scott all the time. So he knows me a bit better than he knows Rachel. And he says to her when he sees her that he's looking at her and he wasn't, he knew he knew her, but he wasn't immediately sure how. And then he sees my son who she's chasing after and he knows my son so well from social media that that's how he knew who it was. So uh, he's already making quite a name for himself. All right, without further ado, it's time for... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Mike. Morning, Frank. Uh, I'm about to have a nice big bowl of cocoa crickets for breakfast. I don't think so. That's when vegan enters the chat. (laughs) Neil. Yeah, Frank. I was told tonight by my son Andrew and daughter-in-law Rachel that I'm going to be a grandfather. Oh, Congratulations, and congratulations to them. That's wonderful news. We're really happy for uh, for all the Schindlers. E. Frank. Yes, I was watching the coronation of King Charles III, 
And I noticed that, you know, the dreaded uh, city of Brooklyn is still representing the uh, United States through the Henry Aaron Montgomery family. Would you believe that? Cheech! America, look what's happened to you. They removed the Ten Commandments and the Pledge of Allegiance from school. They allow girls to join the Boy Scouts. They're attempting to take your First and Second Amendments away. Senator Joseph McCarthy was right. What they did to him, they're doing to Trump. Brandon. Hey, Frank, stay out of the fridge. I think someone got sick off your egg salad and is trying to feed you old, moldy, purple tuna rolls. Eddie. America, America, land of the fleeced, led by the depraved. Charles. Yeah, apparently I wasn't clear the point I was making. Um, what I was saying is that just like they screwed up, doctors and parents screwed up with the eight-year-old boy and didn't tell him, you're going to live, we're just taking some blood, nothing's going to happen to you. The same way they're messing up, they're scaring the hell out of two-year-olds and not even realizing what they're doing. They're giving the kids nightmares. Gary. Tucker Carlson, say his name. Defund the war in Ukraine. Tucker Carlson, say his name. Defund the war in Ukraine. Jeff. Um, Frank, uh, Kevin Jackson, the best guest you ever had on. I hope you have him on again. And a uh, quick question. Phoenix Casino, have you ever been to a casino in Arizona? No, I, I haven't. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I, I would definitely try it. You know, Obi Murray says Uber ratings should only be the last 10 to 50 rides. I agree with him. Frank Morano, good day.